Stay tuned now for Edward R. Murrow with the news presented by Hams, the beer refreshing. Hams is the beer that looks refreshing. Network Radio opened the fall of 1951 fresh off its third consecutive season with plummeting ratings. Only Mutual Broadcasting had no foothold in TV. The other three networks were trying to make sense of their remaining radio advertising and audience while debuting TV features. Unsure of what sponsors would remain loyal to their radio side of business, they commissioned studies on the continuing potential of radio advertising. No study was needed to understand that TV was taking listeners and converting them into viewers, especially in urban and suburban areas. Good evening. The big news tonight is, of course, in Britain, where returns are now coming in on the British national elections. Edward R. Murrow is standing by in London to bring you his report on this day's voting. We take you now direct to London and Edward R. Murrow. This is London. The polls closed in Britain's national election about four hours ago. Here is the way the parties stand at the moment. We have 100 results out of 625. The Labour Party have won 56. The Conservatives, 43. And the Liberals, won. The refrain all evening as the reports have come in from the constituencies has been, no change, no change. In 1948, radio's most listened to show, the Lux Radio Theater, had a rating of 31.2. Just four years later, Lux, still the highest rated show, was down to 13.9. NBC, CBS, ABC, and the Mutual Broadcasting System saw top 50 radio ratings fall into single digits for the first time. These early returns, of course, are in no sense conclusive. Executives preached efficiency. Their focus was getting the most bang for their campaign bucks in print, radio, and TV. By 1951, the networks had begun to sell commercial spots within shows, rather than offer programs for single advertiser sponsorship. His predictions in the past have had a consistent record of accuracy. While we're used to it today, for the first time a listener could hear something like a car commercial in one spot, then a soap commercial in the next. And that was only at the national level. As the network's infrastructure expanded to accommodate TV, their ability to direct programming to even more granular combinations of towns, cities, and regions created new possibilities for radio advertisers. At the regional level, major ad agencies were often block sharing or time slicing with local businesses. Simultaneously, programming had shifted from big audience shows to smaller sound studios. During World War II, comedy, drama, news, and variety dominated the radio dial. But after the war, Detective shows gain network popularity. Tonight we'll focus on a man who had a long career on stage, in Hollywood, and as a radio detective. His name was William Gargan, and we'll spotlight his last radio series, Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator. They seem to have done at least as well as the ordinary Labour candidate, and in fact there is some indication that... Welcome to Breaking Walls, episode 142. My name is James Scully. 
Tonight on Breaking Walls, we feature one of Brooklyn's native sons, Bill Gargan, who made more than 60 films and good money on radio in the 1950s. If this is your first time listening to Breaking Walls, welcome to the show. You can find this series on every podcasting platform and at thewallbreakers.com. Our winning song is The Man with the Golden Arm by Elmer Bernstein. It's the title track from an incredible film of the same name and a fitting riff for the detective genre. Join the Breaking Walls Facebook group to keep in touch with news, snippets, photos, and other additions to the podcast at facebook.com slash groups slash the wallbreakers. And the first eight chapters of Burning Gotham are out everywhere you can get a podcast and at burninggotham.com. It was a 2022 official Tribeca Film Festival audio selection. You can also support these shows for as little as $1 per month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers. Quit your kidding me. <laughs> Jones? Radio gun, sir. You read it. Eight and a half pound boy. May I inquire the cause of these acrobatics? I'm sorry, sir. Answer my question, Lieutenant. Uh, Perhaps this will explain, sir. Lieutenant Jones, we reach San Diego in 30 days. See that you control your emotions until then. Yes, sir. And, uh, congratulations. Thank you, sir. William Dennis Gargan was born to an Irish-American Catholic family in Brooklyn, New York, on July 17, 1905. His parents, Bill and Irene, had seven children, but only Bill and his brother Ed survived infancy. Ed was four years older than Bill. The pair were close. Bill's mother had been a teacher, but his father was a bookmaker and gambler, which didn't sit well with Irene's parents. Gargan's dad made book in the copy room at the New York World and in room nine of City Hall. The four-story brownstone they lived in at 427 Henry Street in Brooklyn Heights was won in a poker game. Today, PS29 stands on the site. Bill got his first silent movie job at age seven for Vitagraph Studios. He was paid $3.85. 
that's roughly $120 today. It portended things to come. By 10, Bill was hanging out at his father's bar in Sunset Park, Brooklyn. Both parents had good senses of humor. Gargan later said that his mother was more straight-laced, a bit of a prude on the surface. But in reality, she ran with his dad all her life and his. He grew up going to Seagate in the summer and fighting for the Irish kids from Bay Ridge against the Italian kids in empty lots. He played baseball and basketball for St. Francis Xavier Grade School and St. James High. And he ditched school in the spring to scale the Ebbetsfield Wall to watch the Dodgers and their stars of the 1910s. When he was 14 and working as an ice brusher at the Prospect Park skating rink, Gargan met a girl named Mary Elizabeth Kenny. He was so taken by her that he used his broom to knock her down. Gargan later recalled that she got up, her eyes spitting fire, and her mouth not doing badly either. I knew I was in love. They hung out at Feltman's in Coney Island, at Lundy's in Sheepshead Bay, or at Lowe's Metropolitan and Keith's Prospect. They were later married on January 19, 1928 in Baltimore. Gargan loved the theater. By high school, he was playing in school productions of Hamlet, Macbeth, and Romeo and Juliet. However, a teacher who'd been out to get Bill for his comedic behavior made life so miserable during Bill's senior year that he dropped out. Gargan became a message runner for a Broad Street brokerage firm, then a cop for a clothing store, then one for a Wall Street agency, until he was fired for losing a tail. He sold Wesson oil to grocers, sneaking away to watch plays. One day the lights went up, and Bill noticed his boss was sitting next to him. Good show, Gargan said. You're fired, said his boss. Bill's brother Ed was an actor. While having lunch one day with Ed, a man named Leroy Clemens mentioned to Bill that a play he'd written was having tryouts. Bill read a line and was hired, beginning his career in Aloma of the South Seas. They opened in Baltimore in 1924. Gargan was a quick study, learning everyone's parts as well as the stage managers. Within a year, he was directing the Philadelphia production of the play. Aloma of the South Seas ran for 40 weeks. Growing up with one foot on the streets helped. Gargan recalled that years later he was playing in Chicago when a man tried to shake him down for a protection racket. Bill refused. A few weeks later he was out drinking when someone slipped him a Mickey and stole his wallet. The next week, the same man was at the theater saying, I told you you needed protection. So Bill called his father. Then Bill got a phone call. He was ushered to a top floor suite at the Lexington Hotel. Al Capone sat behind a desk. Capone said the guy wasn't one of his own and asked Gargan to point the man out the next time Bill saw him at the theater. Soon Bill was called to meet with Capone again. Capone had Bill's wallet and money no one ever shook Bill down again. Gargan spent the next years playing all over the country with people like George Jessel and Richard Bennett. Jessel would be godfather to Bill's first son, Bill Jr., affectionately known as Barry. Barry was born on February 25, 1929. After the stock market crashed, Bill got a short-term job on stage in New York, where he met William Bendix. Soon a casting director at Paramount called, and after that, Leslie Howard cast Bill in a play. Bill later said that Leslie helped make him a star. In 
that same year, on January 12, 1932. Gargan opened at the Broadhurst Theater in New York with Leslie Howard in Philip Barry's The Animal Kingdom. Even with the Depression, it was a smash hit. Simultaneously, Gargan filmed His Woman for Paramount and Queens with Claudette Colbert and Gary Cooper. His success led MGM to call. They offered him the part of Sergeant O'Hara in the 1932 feature Rain, starring Joan Crawford and Walter Houston. He'd be paid $1,500 per week. That's over thirty-three grand today. Bill bought out his contract with the Animal Kingdom, playing on May 2nd for the last time. The next morning, Bill, Mary, and young Barry left for Hollywood. Rain was shot on Catalina Island. Hello, Mama. How's it by you today? Hello, Yohara. Kind of cheery this morning, ain't we? Good boy, Mama. Come on, give me a lift. All together now. Now tell us, Mama. Where's the old man? What's he want, huh? Cigarettes. Cigarettes no got ya. That's just it. Where's Horn? Asleep, huh? Well, we'd have that bird on his feet and down to the docks, Jap Jap Prado. I think so, no. I think so, yes. Get him, boys. What's the matter, Mama? The old man acting up again? How you talk? What do you say? My husband is a very good man. What's all this? What's all this? Relax. Where am I? Home. To be sure. The Arduna's in, Joe. Well, what of it? No caricone, no sardine, no peaches, no corned beef. And no cigarettes. On your feet, mate. Fall in. Wait, wait. Much too early in the morning for life, Burton. Right your chin. Oh, well, if I must, I must. William Gargan appeared in more than 50 films in the 1930s. In between, he and Mary's second son, Leslie, was born on June 28, 1933. The Gargans bought the late Gene Harlow's house at 512 North Palm Drive for $27,000. They lived there for the next quarter century. Bill's parents passed away in the middle of the decade. Gargan soon signed a Warner Brothers two-year contract that paid him $100,000 turning down the role of Duke Mantee and Robert Sherwood's The Petrified Forest on Broadway to sign. The role went to friend Humphrey Bogart. For more info on Bogey, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 140. Bill made his Lux Radio Theater debut on March 6, 1939, in an adaptation of One Way Passage. Another drink, Dan. All right, Hardesty, stay right where you are. Uh well, hello, Steve. Keep your hands in the air, Dan. Hey, what's the matter here? It's all right, Mike. You can put the rod away, Steve. After I put you away, pull out your hand. I've got a bracelet for it. Wait a second. I'll roll up my sleeve for you. It's been a long chase, Dan, but a guy can't do what you've done and get away with it. Yeah, so it seems. Come on, slip them on, Dan. Sure. Why, you... Look out, Dan. He's got a rod and he'll use it. I hate to do this, Dan, but you asked for it. Now, Danny boy, will you come along peaceful-like? Stephen, I guess you win. I always win. <clears throat> you should have known better than to try anything like that on me. Don't try another break, dude. 
I'll blow you in two. I'd just as leave deliver you in a basket. Mm, not a chance. Just make one false move. Go on. Just one. I'm tame. Now what? The boat. And then San Quentin. Can I get my clothes? They're on the boat. I put them there just before I came to collect you. Consider it. Yeah. I don't think you'll find I've overlooked anything. Baby, you sure stuck to my tail. Sure. You never heard of Steve Burke dogging it, did you? You're a wonder. I thought I ditched you sure back in Paris. Oh, no. When I left Frisco, the chief says to me, Steve, don't come back alone, and he knew I wouldn't. Fine work, Sergeant. Mike, take the man a drink. Never mind that. We're in a hurry. The boat sails in 20 minutes. 20? What boat are we going on? The Maloa. Ready? The Maloa? <laughs> oh. Bye-bye, Mike. See you around. How long do we stay chained together, Steve? Or are these cuffs permanent? You'll get used to them. I ain't taking any chances with you. They broke five of my pals when you escaped. Well, that wasn't right. They did all they could. They were shooting at me for three blocks. Unlucky, that's all. They missed me. Lucky for you I wasn't among them. Thanks. You know, the one thing I don't understand is how a nice guy like you can get yourself in such a jam. You ain't a mug. You're a right guy. And you could have hey, been one of the best... Don't near that rail, please. Huh? What's the matter, sailor? Oh, well, you haven't put the pins in yet, sir. You lean on that rail and you're liable to go clean over. Okay. What are you looking at, Dan? Huh? Oh, I was just looking down. Your long drop, wouldn't it? Yeah. Kind of gives you the shivers. Yeah. Get back a little. We're still chained together and I can't swim. You can't? Well... Look, look down, Steve. Hey, look out. Get away from that rail. Steve. There they are. Down there. Get a life preserver. Help. Help. Come back. I can't swim. Oh, you can't, can you? On the level. All right. Keep your chin up, Steve. I haven't, sir. You all right? Me? Sure. You all right, sir? <coughs> yeah. McDonald. Okay. Yes, sir. See these two gentlemen get to their staterooms. Yes, sir. This way, sir. What number is it? Gargan hated working for Warner Brothers. He likened it to sleeping on a bed of nails. The press labeled him Bill Gargan, king of the B-movies. He later broke his contract. Perhaps his most famous role was as Joe in the 1940 RKO film, They Knew What They Wanted. Gargan received third billing behind Carol Lombard and Charles Lawton and was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar. Hey, RFD! Wait a minute. You going down to Napa? Sure. Save us a trip, will you? Thank you, boss. Okay. See, you get down the right train. Hey, Tony! Where's you going, Joe? San Francisco. Hey! Joe! Joe! Look at me! Joe! Look at me! <laughs> I'm the most stylish fella I ever see. Sono un signore, vedi la cravatta. E pantaloni, e la mica fella. 
Yeah, you're prettier than a picture. <laughs> for the feet. Hey, you better get them on. You got a train to make. What you talking to go to San Francisco for? Huh? Johnny said, hey, Tony, it's the time you take a vacation. He's taking a vacation. Sure. Johnny, he look after Tony. Who's Johnny? St. Giovanni, his private angel. Oh. They've been pals for so long, he calls him Johnny. <laughs> Johnny, sure. He look down from heaven, he say, hey, Tony, you got a ranch to grow the grape, and you got a Joe to Boston ranch. You got a Chinese cook, and you got a new truck. What do you know got? You know got the vacation. Hey, you better get the shoe on, you won't have a vacation. Joe? Joe? I don't know. The shoes she had feet. Maybe he got the wrong shoes on the wrong feet. Maybe his feet wasn't meant for shoes. <laughs> oh. 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 Lace him up on the train. Look at me, huh? I am the most stylish fellow I ever seen. So we know, huh? That's my eat on the railroad then. Hey, nice lunch. Apple's pie. Apple pie. Get going. Apple pie. Get a couple of weeks, Tony. Apple pie. Goodbye, boys. The plot is, while visiting San Francisco, Tony Petucci, played by Lawton, an aging illiterate wine grower from the Napa Valley, sees waitress Amy Peters, played by Lombard, and falls in love. Tony gets his foreman Joe, a womanizer, to write her a letter in Tony's name. Tony's courtship culminates with a proposal. When she requests a picture of him, one of Joe is sent. Amy goes to Napa to be married, only to find that Joe isn't her husband-to-be. I'm kind of a... Are you embarrassed? I sure am. Funny, so why? Getting married is awful serious business, and I got no doubt there's persons thinking we're treating it kind of lightly, but I say no. People fall in love at first sight, don't they? All right, then getting married at first sight. What's wrong with that? Why, why, my folks down in the Santa Clara Valley, they knew each other for five years before they got married. You should have observed how they turned out every night, every Hmm? Oh, excuse me, Mr. Petucci, I thought you was about to say something. Uh, yeah, uh... I was going to... Uh, no. Oh. Well, I was about to remark, Tony. I thought it over real careful, and I don't want you to think I'm the type girl that does things like this all the time. Oh, no. Mildred, that's my most intimate girlfriend. She... Beg pardon? Oh, uh, nothing. I... I was... Uh... You was just thinking? Yeah. Yeah, I was uh, just uh... thinking. I admire men to think. Uh, they always got such interesting things to say. Sooner or later. 
she decides to go through with the marriage. However, while Tony is in bed after an accident, Amy and Joe have an affair. Two months later, Amy discovers she's pregnant. I see them. It is indeed. Uh, about the words to let their song... Quite unnecessary to explain. Believe me. What I'm really trying to say, Miss Amy, about this noon, uh, about that mix-up this noon... That too is quite unnecessary to explain. Believe me. Tony's is a friend of mine. You don't have to like me. There's plenty others do. I got no doubt of that. Plenty others. You know what I'm glad I ain't? An insurance company. Tony, andiamo. Okay. You're watching me, Amy. Watch me. <laughs> Joe, I appreciate it, what you just done. Forget it. I'm sorry I ain't been nice to you. I want to express my apologies. Forget it. I don't want you standing there thinking I got a mean character. What are they doing now, Joe? Showing off. Upon learning of the infidelity, Tony pummels Joe, but forgives Amy insisting they still be married. Unable to forgive herself, she leaves with the priest. Meanwhile, Gargan did more radio. He appeared on the January 4th, 1940 episode of The Good News with his former co-star, Ann Southern. Good News aired Thursdays at 9 p.m. Eastern Time over NBC's Red Network. Its 16.9 rating was 12th overall. Maxwell House Coffee presents Good News of 1940. This is Edward Arnold, and I welcome you on behalf of the makers of Maxwell House Coffee to another hour of entertainment brought to you each week from Hollywood and starring Fanny Bryce, Hanley Stafford, Connie Boswell, and Meredith Wilson in his orchestra. Tonight's guests of honor are Miss Ann Southern and Mr. William Gargan, stars of the new MGM production, Joe and Ethel Turp calls on the president, and our old friend, Raymond Walburn. Well, this is the first program of the new year, and I'm full of resolutions. Number one is, I've made up my mind to take off a few pounds. Gee, you can certainly spare them, Eddie. Who asked you? 
Uh, pardon. Just for that, I'm going to put on a few pounds. I'll need it for my new role anyway. Well, where are you going to roll, Eddie? Ah, uh, now, now, lout. I'm going to play Diamond Jim Brady. Again? Well, what of it? It's my favorite part because all I do is eat for ten reels. <laughs> Plenty of retakes, too. Now I regret to inform you, ladies and gentlemen, that Meredith has persuaded me to appear during the opening song, Peace Brother. Down you anyway, Meredith. Oh, gee, Ed, you do it swell. Come on, let's get started. Well, all right. It can't sound as bad as anyone else does to me. Well, let's we'll see. It. All right. <laughs> Good News was the first major collaboration of a movie studio and a broadcast system for a commercial sponsor. The idea was, simply put, to dazzle him with glitter. MGM produced. Every star except Garbo was available. There would be songs, stories, comedy, and drama. It promised an intimate glimpse of Hollywood with its hair down. The result cost Maxwell House $25,000 a week. Now, when my working day is through, I don't want to unlax for an hour or two. Who tells me what I gotta do? Nobody. And when I sits me down for my evening treat, and a sirloin steak would make my meal complete, who tells me what I can or cannot eat? Nobody. Now, when some question to me is referred, and I feel like getting up and making myself heard, who says, brother, don't you say a word? Nobody. And when the Sunday meeting bells ring out, and I want to give that hallelujah shout. Who says I can't put that old devil to rout? Eh? Who told me that, eh? Nobody. Not a soul. Peace, brother. All your sins can be forgiven. Peace, brother. Ain't you glad you're living? great. You surprised me. Now, let's forget all about it, please. Ladies and gentlemen, I want you to meet two of the nicest young people in Hollywood. Stars of the Metro-Goldwyn-Mayer production of Damon Runyon's grand story, Joe and Ethel Turp, Call on the President. Here they are, Ann Southern and Bill Gard. <laughs> and you, you look positively beautiful tonight. More beautiful than ever. Oh, dear me, Edward. How does one curtsy over the air? Make a noise like a bow. Just creak your hips a little, dear. Ah. <laughs> Quiet, Turf. Okay, Twerk. <laughs> no, I really mean it, Anne. Your hair's enchanting. Your eyes are full of sparkle. Your whole being seems to radiate charm and beauty. 
Say, uh, can you say one good word for my new mustache? <laughs> now, Bill, we came here this evening to talk about more cultural topics. That's right. Joe and Ethel Turk calls on the president at your favorite theater next week. <laughs> Quiet, Gargan. This is no place to advertise. No, dear, don't be crass. Crass? Oh, I'm going to look that up. Edward, is it true that you've written your autobiography? Yeah, Gilda Ann. It's entitled Lorenzo Goes to Hollywood. $3 a copy at all bookstores starting January the 10th. Don't be crass, Edward. <laughs> that fit, honey? <laughs> but honestly, Edward, I can't understand a young man like you writing his autobiography. Yeah, yeah. I thought you have to die before you write one of those things. Well, it is customary, but I decided to break the precedent. Oh. Joe and Ethel Turp call on the precedent. Oh. Oh. <laughs> What's the book about, Edward? Well, it's about 300 pages, and the principal topic is me. Oh. You mean it hasn't any story? Well, my publishers describe it as the story of my success. Gargan, if you say a missed story, I'll scream. <laughs> the girl's a mind reader. Can I get a free copy of the book, Ed? Oh, sure. I'll be glad to autograph one for you, Bill. Uh, if it's not too much trouble, Eddie, I, I, I think I'd like to have two. Why, I'd be delighted. You want to give it to a friend? No, uh, I've got a bridge table with a short leg. Oh. oh, I knew I shouldn't have brought him here tonight. I apologize, Edward. But maybe we can make up for it later in the program. I'm quite sure you will. I'm looking forward to hearing you as Mr. and Mrs. Joe Turp. Poisonally, I think you'll love I, Ethel. <laughs> Edward, I think you'll be quiet if Connie Boswell sings. I guarantee it. I love to hear that girl rip off a song. Hiya, Connie. Hiya, Billy boy. <laughs> Connie's starting with the Western tonight. Her own interpretation of I'm an old cowhand. Sing it, Connie. I'm an old cowhand from Rio Grande. But my legs ain't bold and my cheeks ain't tan. I'm a cowboy who never saw a cow, never roped a steer cause I don't know how. Connie Boswell was the singer. Here she is talking with Lee Phillip. Well, my philosophy is very uh, simple, I think. Many people listening in do not know it or have forgotten it, but I had polio when I was three years old, and I was paralyzed from the top of my head right down to my toe. I couldn't move anything. They had to feed me through a tube. When I was four years old, Lee, let's face it, that was not exactly last Tuesday. We didn't have all these vaccines and iron lungs, and we didn't have the knowledge that they have today. And, of course, they're still working on it, but they knew nothing about it when I was a child. So my mother just started in a kind of a logical way, and she started trying to make me crawl all over again to get the strength back. And within about six months after I had polio, the strength in my arms came back a little bit, and as I said, my family or musical. Mother wanted me to study cello, all classical music, and of course the practicing, you know, and I loved it. I adored it. I think practicing the cello helped bring a lot of strength back into my arms. I believe that that's a good philosophy in itself. People who, well, who even aren't handicapped or don't know that they're handicapped, because in my way of thinking, everyone is handicapped in some way or other. If a fine violinist has to get in a ring with a trained prize fighter. He is definitely handicapped one way or another. But the so-called handicapped people who have had accidents or blind people or can't hear, you just have to work twice as hard or sometimes ten times harder. I know, going by myself, I have had to work so much harder than the average person. When I'd play theaters, the Roxy in uh, New York City, they had big production numbers, and they didn't want you sitting low in a wheelchair. So we got an idea where I would sit on a tall cocktail stool and put the dress around, and I learned to kick my feet out so that when I'd come with two 
course boys bringing me out all dressed up that I looked like I was walking at the time. And my, my philosophy is that everyone has a certain amount of talent. God gives us all something, and we must seek to find out what that something is and just work as hard as we can to do the best we can with what we've got. And we must be able to face obstacles and try to climb over them. As someone said many, many years ago before all of us, obstacles are only stepping stones to success. Fine, Tommy, fine. Say, Warren. Yes, Eddie. Uh, Warren, I have an idea. Gargan was back on the program the following week in a one-act play opposite Lorene Tuttle. See, I always like to work with the top people. I'm not very good when I work with people who are not very good. <laughs> I'm just not. I like to work with. I like to work with people who are vibrant and know their business. I work a thousand times better if I have a challenge. I think it comes from being a Leo, like I am. I just think, you know, because I'm a Leo, I just, I roar that way. I would not like to see radio go to the unworthies, as it might. I'd want to see radio put back in the old timers' hands. The ones who directed it and the agencies who handled it, I wouldn't want to see radio done in any of the people's hands in the last... Tw- 20 years, maybe. I shouldn't say that, because there's some very bright young people that I adore lately. This is Edward Arnold. Again, we continue our Good News Maxwell House show with a delightful one-act play by Paul Raphael. This sketch was presented two years ago on Good News, and ever since then, we've had received so many requests from our listeners who want to hear it that we take real pleasure in presenting it, especially with two such fine performers as we bring with you tonight. Uh, William Gargan and that charming actress, Lorene Tuttle. The curtain music, Meredith. The scene, the attic apartment of Ken Larkin, one of the many unemployed actors in New York. Kay Larkin, Ken's wife, and Miss Jones, their cat, are awaiting Ken's arrival. Hush up, Kitty. You're not hungry. Just had some mackerel an hour ago. Drink your milk. Hello, dear. It's that man again. Oh, hello, Ken. What was that noise? Huh? Noise? Yes, kind of thumping noise. As if someone were dragging something along the hall. Why, uh, uh, I don't know, honey. Uh, unless it was my wooden leg. Oh, don't be silly, Ken. What was it? I don't know. I, I didn't see anything. I'm a stranger here myself. Ken, you can be such a... Oh, Ken. Did you? No, honey. Oh. Didn't you even get to see your agent? Oh, sure. I saw him. What did he say? There might be a part for me in a play going into production next month. Next month? Oh, well, something else will break. You're too good an actor to... Are you hungry, Ken? Hungry? Uh... Uh, no, not very. Well, you better eat something. You went off this morning without even a cup of coffee. Yeah, yeah, no, I was in a hurry. Well, I'll fix you something. I know. I'll fix you some cream mackerel. Some what? Some cream mackerel. Oh. What did you say? I said, uh, oh. I know you said, oh. It was the way you said it. The way I said, uh, oh? Yes. Oh. <laughs> Just what did you mean by it? 
Oh, uh, you know. Oh, it's an expression. An expression meaning what? Well, if you must know, it means I dote on cream mackerel, my pet, but... Uh, Go on. But do you think it's right to rob the cat? Well, I'm trying to stretch things out just as long as I can. And if I get things to eat that the cat can eat, too, it's just because all I... All right, all right. Now, don't, don't get excited. Maybe it's a good idea. In time, we may have to eat the cat. Well, if you think for one minute that I like doing... Oh, Ken, I'm sorry. I don't mean to be so nasty all the time, but I... Do. I know, honey. I guess things have gone on for so long, they've made us both a little crazy. Well, I'll fix you some coffee. Oh. Oh, another O? Um, what's the matter? I forgot. Forgot what? Ken, they, um... They turned off the gas today. They turned off... Why, the... Oh, well, never mind, honey. We can get our meals on the electric grill for a few days. You don't mind, do you, honey? No, I don't mind. Only, um... Only what? Only they turned off the electricity, too. What? Why, that's an outrage. We're only two months behind. I'll call him up and tell him exactly what oh, I... Oh, no, no, Ken. You, you better not. At least I'll have the satisfaction of... Oh. Yes. They disconnected the phone, too. Mm. Well, this is fine. Supposing somebody called me for a job. Supposing... Oh, never mind, Ken. It'll work out somehow. I wouldn't mind, Kay, if, if only... Oh, but tomorrow's your birthday, and here we are... Me without a job and you... Me exactly where I want to be. Oh, honey, you're, you're sweet. Yes, I know. And winsome, too. Ken, you sit down for a minute. Read the paper or something. I'll, I'll be right back. Hey, wait a minute, Kay. Where are you going? Just down to the delicatessen. Why, Ken, what in the name of heaven are these? Oh, uh, <laughs> I was going to tell you about them in a minute or two. Uh, Ken, uh, darling, what are they? Well, they're, uh, well, uh, they're a surprise. I, uh... I got them for you for your birthday. You um, got them for me for my... Yeah. Ken, what are they? Um, uh, stilts. Stilts? Yeah, you, uh, you climb on them and walk around and look down on people. But Ken, what on them? Well, I said to myself, you never know when Kay might take a notion to go out walking on stilts, I, uh, I said. Um, oh, Ken, you idiot. Tell me this minute what these things are doing out here. All right, all right, but uh, come on in and shut the door before the landlord sees us. Oh, oh, yes. I don't suppose he really would throw us out for a month's rent, though, do you? Well, don't try to change the subject. Did you ever see me put a curse on a landlord, Mrs. Larkin? First, I draw a circle on the floor. Then I leap into the air, revolve three times, constantly frothing at the mouth. After Ken, that, I... stop it. Well, what about the stilts? Oh, yes, the stilts. Well, oh, they can wait. I, I've got something else to tell you. Okay? Tomorrow we celebrate. Celebrate? Yeah, your birthday. With an eight-course dinner. Soup, salad, steak, mashed potatoes, everything. With a cocktail before, mince pie afterwards. Oh, Ken, the... not really. How? Well, uh... I get the dinner and a dollar for uh, doing a little job for somebody. A job? What kind of a job? Well, it's a, it's a, a kind of a, a, an advertising job. Oh, Ken, I think that's wonderful. Who for? Uh, for uh, Mammy's old Southern Dixie Carolina Plantation dining room. Who? Maxie's Elite Restaurant. Oh, well, Ken, I think that's wonderful. Only, Ken. Yeah. 
Has your job for Mr. Maxey anything to do with the stilts? Well, uh, in a way, uh, uh, yes, it has. Tell me. Well, it's it's a dinner, Kay, and a, and a dollar besides, and it, it won't be so bad. What do you have to do? Well, there's a there's a a kind of a sign that goes with the stilts. It's uh, uh, very smart, really. It's uh, there's a very beautiful and lifelike picture of a roast chicken on one side oh, of it, and uh, oh, you just stick your head between two pieces of cardboard and. Oh, uh, Oh, now, look, oh. honey, don't take it that way. I wouldn't have told you about it. If... You, a swell actor who's had his name up in lights. Only in Brooklyn, honey. Uh, and the play only lasted two weeks. So, oh. Oh, oh, please don't cry, Kay. I'm not crying because of that. Well, then, then what are you crying for? I'm crying because you're so brave and wonderful. Oh, no, I'm not. Yes, you are, too. You're brave and you're wonderful. Oh, I'm not I Yes, you are. All right, then. I'm brave and I'm wonderful. Want to make something of it? Oh, oh, darling, you're such a fool. <laughs> Besides that, you're you're kind of crazy. All actors are crazy, my pet. They'd have to be, or they'd go mad. Let me go, Ken. Oh, dear, I must look a sight. I'm going to powder my nose and get my hat and coat. Sure, you. you. What? Oh, wait a minute, Kay. You don't think that you're well, going to? Of course to... I am. You don't think I'd let you go alone, do you? Why, you might fall off those things. Oh, I won't fall off. As a kid, I was the champion stilt walker in our neighborhood. Besides, I, uh, I practiced on them this morning in the alley. Well, I'm going with you just the same. Kay, you don't understand. I've, I've got to walk up Broadway on them. Broadway? Yes. Well, don't, don't look like that, Kay. Nobody will know who I am. Mr. Maxey has very kindly provided a costume and mask to go with the stilts. I'm going. There's no use talking. I'm going with you. Okay, don't be a sentimental idiot. It's just a, a, a job. You're making something else out it's of it. It's not just a job. It's something you're doing because of me. And, and, well, I'm going, and that's all there is to it. Oh, you are? Yes, I am. Well, you're a cussed, pig-headed, perverse, and obstinate female, and... Uh, I love you. Come on. Mind it, darling. Think of the steak and the mashed potatoes and the mince pie. Look at that guy, will you? Guess you gotta be pretty flat to do that for a living. Hey, didn't I tell you to move on to those things? You're blocking traffic here. Now go on, beat it. Don't Come mind it, Ken. Don't mind them, darling. It'll soon be over. <laughs> Wait a minute, Ken. I'll light the candles. All right. You can close the door now. Well, I guess that was one of the best performances I ever gave, my sweet. Yes, Ken. I always told you I'd be a big hit on Broadway. <laughs> Tired, Kay? Just a little. Are you? No. I feel swell. Kay? Yes? Do you, you mind an awful lot? Mind? Well, it, it it's being your birthday tomorrow and us not having a... a... Kay, 
I got you a little present. I was going to wait to give it oh, to you, but... Oh, Ken, you shouldn't have. What? Oh, Ken, it's the doorbell. It couldn't be a bill collector at this hour. It might be. Wait a minute. Oh. Yes? Who's there? Is this Ken Larkin's apartment? Huh? Mr. Larkin, uh, he's not here. What? Well, uh, where is he? Um, I don't know where Mr. Larkin is. I, uh, I think maybe he's dead. Dead? Anyway, he's a move away from here. If, if you want to collect the bill, I I'm think... I'm not uh... collecting any bills. I've got a job for Ken Larkin. If he's not here, where can I find A job? A job! Why? It's, it's Mr. Rollins. Oh, come in. Come in, Mr. Allen. Yes. Yes, come in, Mr. Allen. Oh, okay, this is uh, uh, Mr. Allen. Oh. oh, is it? Yes, it's it's Mr. Allen. Well. <laughs> Mr. Allen produced that play I was in in, in Brooklyn last oh. year. Oh, did he? Yes. Well, do come in, Mr. Allen. Yes. Uh, sit down, Mr. Allen. Oh, uh, don't mind the candle. You see, uh, tomorrow's my birthday. Your birthday? Yes. yes. You see, it's just a funny old custom of Ken's mine. The night before my birthday, we... We burn candles. <laughs> nothing but candles the night before my birthday. Yes, yes, uh, nothing but candles. <laughs> I see. Uh, won't you, uh, won't you have a cigar, Mister Allen, or uh, I mean a, a cigarette? Oh, uh, um, I guess we're uh, kind of out of cigarettes. Uh, 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 this is uh, this is my wife, Kay, Mister Allen. <laughs> How do you do? How do you do? Uh, and uh, this uh, this is our uh, cat, Miss Jones. <laughs> oh, I. I think it's so nice you dropped in, Mr. Allen. I, I think it's uh, so nice. Yes, so nice. <laughs> uh, uh, yes, yes, yes. Well, I, I can't stay a minute. I just took a chance on finding you on my way home, Larkin. I've been trying to get you on the phone all day. Oh, been uh, trying to get me on the, on the phone? Yes, your phone must be out of order or something. Oh, you don't say. Well, uh, we'll have to complain to the uh, company about that. Yeah. Yes. Well, I've got a part for you, Larkin. You, you uh, I, uh, I, uh, a part... Oh, a part! Oh, you mean in a, in a play? Yes, we're going into rehearsal next week. Well, well, of course. Uh, you always were my favorite producer, Mr. Allen. And uh, if you think I'm right for the part... Well, well, it's uh, a funny thing. I'd uh, almost forgotten about you since that play you did for me last year. But the minute I saw this fellow, I thought of you. And right away, I knew you were perfect for the part. You, uh, you saw this, this fellow? Yeah, yeah, a fellow on stilts. Advertising some restaurant or other. I saw him walking down Broadway. For some reason or other, he made me think of you. He, uh, he did. Yes. Yeah. You see, I've got to have a tall juvenile for this play, and something about this fellow on stilts made me think of you. And right away, I knew you... Oh, but I said that before, didn't I? Yes, yes, you did. Well, uh, I've got to be running along. Yeah. I'll see you at my office tomorrow. Uh, oh, uh... Yes, Mr. Allen? Yes, Mr. Allen. A happy birthday to you. <laughs> Gargan and Lorene Tuttle. And now my favorite songstress, Connie Boswell. Bill was nominated for a Best Supporting Actor Oscar, won by good friend Walter Brennan for The Westerner. Bill later joked that Brennan spent 90 minutes spitting, and Gargan lost to a spittoon. The joking was short-lived. Taken out of the NBC newsroom. Good afternoon, everybody. This is H.V. Kaltenborn speaking to you from the NBC newsroom. Here is what has happened. President Roosevelt phoned Secretary Early half an hour ago that the Japanese had attacked Pearl Harbor, the United States naval base on Oahu Island in the Hawaiian Islands. A few minutes later, he again phoned Mr. Early and told him that planes had attacked Manila. 
This means that war is underway between Japan and the United States. President Roosevelt's announcement of Japanese air attacks on United States Pacific bases... Gargan would soon begin work on another film with the appropriate title, I Wake Up Screaming. Are you new to old-time radio? A hardcore fan? Curious, but don't know where to start? Try the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, a podcast dedicated to the great horror, crime, and suspense shows from the golden age of radio, including tales from Suspense, Lights Out, Quiet Please, The Shadow, and more. Each episode features a classic or maybe not-so-classic story from the old-time radio vault, complete with historical notes and trivia. At the end of each podcast, your mysterious old hosts, Tim, Joshua, and Eric, discuss the merits of the story and decide whether or not it stands the test of time, balancing insight and humor to make you think harder about what made these old shows so great, even when they aren't so great. The Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society is available everywhere you get your podcasts, as long as you get your podcast from iTunes or Podbean. For more information about the Mysterious Old Radio Listening Society, or to download episodes directly, visit ghoulishdelights.com. And now back to Breaking Walls. A captain in the Signal Corps had come back from Germany. He'd spent some time over there after the war, a year or two. And he brought back, I don't know whether he brought a prototype of a tape machine or whether he just brought back the knowledge of how to put one together. But anyhow, he built one and showed it to us, and it was practical, and it seemed to me we could get the same result as a live show, taping in front of an audience, and still have an opportunity to edit or delete or interpolate anything that we uh, wanted to do after the show was finished, although lots of times there was no necessity to uh, touch the show at all. And again, you could tape it any day you wanted. You could tape it two or three days in a row if you wanted if it appeared that you were going to want three or four weeks off for a trip. It seemed to me an ideal thing, but the networks didn't want it, didn't like it. They felt it would break up the networks mm-hmm. or something, and the trade papers uh, opposed it, the taping. Uh, I think I finally uh, got a little petulant about it, I, or adamant. I said, well, it's going to be that way, or, uh, or get a new boy or something. Oh, come in. Hello, Miss Gallagher. How are you? Just fine. Father, I was always wondering what was so important you couldn't tell me over the telephone. Well, I don't know just how to go about breaking it. Is it about it. Patsy? Mm-hmm, yes. Oh, what's happened, Father? Well, well, what's wrong? What's no, she it's done? it's not bad news, necessarily. In fact, this, this could be good news. Oh, I'm so glad. She's been getting along so well. If Well, if anything should happen to upset oh, now, her now... take it easy. I, Nothing well, has happened. What's it got to do with Patsy that you said it had, had something to do with Patsy? Well, it has. I found her father. Joe. I think so. I told him the, the story as you told it to me, and I described you to him. And How on earth did you run him down? Well, he's a piano player. Once a piano player, always a piano player. I got him through the musician's union. I went right to the top. Petrillo. I really don't know what to say. <laughs> Neither do I. Well, um... <laughs> is, uh, is he in town? In town, he's here. He's out in the hall. Oh no! Yeah, shall I bring him in? Oh no, not. But well, that is. 
Wait just a minute, will you? I, uh, you know. She'll be a few minutes. She's fixing her hair and powdering her nose and one thing another. You know how. This is um, kind of a big moment for me. Mind you, it's it's 13 years. I was a little bit younger then. Well, he hasn't exactly been on ice, you know. <laughs> oh. Well, shall we? Sit down a little while. Yeah, thank you. Mm -hmm. You haven't changed a bit. <laughs> Neither of you, Joe. <laughs> Do me a favor, will you? What's that? Play the piano. Oh. Please, please. I want Father to hear you. I've been telling him all about you. <laughs> Don't let me down. Listen to this, Father. He's really good. What was that song we used to love so much? You mean, uh, uh, By the Sea? No, Joe. <laughs> no, it, it... It had a bit of the rosary in it. But, but that, that wasn't the melody. Don't you remember? We said that that no matter what happened, that song would always see us through. And then we pressed the rosebud in the book. What happened? Yeah. Where's the book? Mm. <clears throat> What's the matter, Father? Do you know it? I sure. That's an old song called. Uh... In the land of beginning again. What? <laughs> Why'd you say so? You never asked me. Oh, well, come on over here and get in there. You'll be sorry. There's a land of beginning again. During the war, Bill Gargan led a USO group that featured Kenan Wynn, Paulette Goddard, an accordionist, and the Arkari. They toured China, Burma, India. He spent four months overseas in some of the poorest and worst conditions of the war, putting on shows and flying in various prop planes, despite a lingering ear infection, and drinking whatever alcohol he could find to keep sane. When Bill finally got home, his ear was so swollen that his wife jokingly called him Dumbo. Under contract with MGM, he borrowed an apartment in New York and went on stage. His first night, he got word that friend Leslie Howard had been killed in a plane crash. The war marked a dividing line in Bill's life. He went back to Hollywood and made Swing Fever, She Gets Her Man, 
And finally, in 1945, he starred with Bing Crosby, Ingrid Bergman, and Martha Sleeper as Joe Gallagher in The Bells of St. Mary's. Television sets began to show up in homes as Bill and his agent Ken Dolan conceived a half-hour mystery radio show called Murder Will Out for ABC. It failed to find a long-term sponsor and was canceled. Gargan next starred in Ideal and Crime, beginning on January 21, 1946 on ABC. He played private investigator Ross Dolan for the next 20 months. I deal in crime. The American Broadcasting Company presents I Deal in Crime, starring William Gargan as Ross Dolan. This is Ross Dolan speaking from one of the ringside tables at the Rose Room Dance Palace. Yeah, you guessed it. Fifty beautiful hostesses. Count them, fifty. If you're wondering what I'm doing in a spot where they tap you a dime for a two-time whirl around a small floor... It's because somebody gave me a lifetime pass. Also, because a man named William Davis came to see me. William A. Davis, if you please. He was one of those stuffy little bus budgets, about 50 years old, and tried to cling to a dull youth by brushing his thin hair over a rapidly spreading bald spot. He walked into my office one bright afternoon and said, hey, Mr. Dolan, you're a detective. I want you to find my daughter for me. Sure, sure, Mr. Uh, 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 sit down. I haven't time. My name is Davis. William Davis. William A. Davis. Well, glad to meet you. My name is Dolan. Ross Dolan. The only second name my father gave me I got when I broke the mirror in the front parlor. I have no time for levity, Mr. Dolan. Oh. Naturally, since my daughter has disappeared, I've been quite concerned. Even a trifle distraught, if I may say so. Oh, uh, say anything you want. I live up in Mission Valley. Oh. Lived there for 20 years. And one day last week, my daughter simply disappeared. Uh, how old is your daughter, Mr. Davis? She's 17. A dangerous age. Yeah. Also, you'll find her self-willed. You may have trouble bringing her back. Uh-huh. Any boyfriends, Mr. Davis? I know of none. I've prepared a sort of brochure on Jacqueline. The picture's a complete history, so you'd have something to work on. Here. Oh, thanks. Hmm. She's a pretty kid, isn't she? Yes. Uh, let us discuss your fee, Mr. Dolan. My ceiling is $5 per day. Five bucks a day? Mr. Davis, you better either raise your ceiling or lower your floor. You're talking to the wrong man. Well, I'm a sporting man, Mr. Dolan. I'll make you a proposition. If you find Jacqueline, $500. If you don't, nothing. Now, of course, I'll pay your expenses. Mm-hmm. I think I'll take you up on that, Mr. Davis. Yes, I, I thought so. You have a reputation for being quite a gambler. Thanks. I, uh, I presume her mother is quite concerned, too. I don't know, Mr. Dolan. Also, I don't care. (laughs) 
William A. Davis hiked out of there like an upstate Napoleon on his way to Josephine. I settled down to the more serious job of finding a 17-year-old girl in a big city. And it turned out to be tough. The missing persons bureau gave me no leads. Neither did the hospitals. I called and asked more questions than a quiz master at a lawn party and finally wound up with a pretty, nice, round goose egg. I decided to beat it down the street. But the minute I left the building, I got that uncomfortable feeling around the collar. I walked a block and looked around. I had a tail. I kept going towards the next corner. I rounded the corner and stopped. My pal was close behind me. He was a big, beefy bird, but I stopped him. Oh, pardon me. Hey, why don't you look where you... Uh Uh-oh. What's the matter, Pally? Afraid you'll miss the bus? I'm not on my way to missing any buses. Maybe not, but you sure missed the vote. Get out of my way, mister. I'm in a hurry. Sure, sure, you're in a hurry. So am I. Hey, what are you doing? What are you pulling? Let go my arm. Maybe I ought to snap it for you. My arm. Cut it out, will you? Sure, Pally. As soon as you tell me why you were following me. I wasn't following you, mister. Change your mind, Pally? My arm. My arm. And I told me to tell you. It was a guy on that corner back there. He gave me five bucks. You're lying, Pally. Oh. Talk straight. Oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, I'm telling. With a lawyer. His name was Clemson. He's in the Ryan building. Uh-huh. What do you want? I don't know. Just wanted me to follow you. Tell him where you went, that's all. Can I uh, go now? Yeah. You're going, Pally. With me. Now, if this is another of your feeble fabrications, uh, I'll really give you something to scream about. During that time, Gargan also guest starred on Family Theater, hosting the second episode on February 20th, 1947. The Mutual Broadcasting System presents The Family Theater, starring Walter Brennan and Beulah Bondi, with William Gargan as your host. Family Theater was created by Patrick Payton of the Holy Cross Fathers. Mutual Broadcasting donated the time under four conditions. The show had to be a drama of top quality, strictly non-sectarian, feature a film star, and Father Payton had to pay the production costs. Payton met Loretta Young, who advised him on how to approach A-listers. More things are wrought by prayer than this world dreams of. She became the first lady of Family Theater. Good evening. This is Bill Gargan. And before I say another word, I want to thank all of you on behalf of the Family Theater for your telegrams, letters, and phone calls, which we received after last week's program. As a matter of fact, so many of you called that the network switchboards here in Hollywood and all over the country were literally jammed. And many of you asked the same question. Who sponsors this program, the Family Theater? The answer is simple. Nobody. And everybody. The actual show is put together by a lot of us in pictures and radio who agree that the most important thing in the world is our family, my family and yours. We think that a happy family means a happy community. A happy community means a happy country. And happy countries, well, when you love your neighbor, you don't fight with him, do you? 
And so we offer this program, its plays and players, with a conviction that prayer, that's what I said, prayer, family prayer, will give us the faith and understanding which we all need to keep our families together. If you're listening to Family Theater tonight for the first time, and you're wondering how faith can help you, why not sit back and listen to Charles Taswell's story, No Night Too Dark, with Meredith Wilson's orchestra, and starring Walter Brennan and Beulah Bondi, with Jennifer Holt and Jean Reynolds. State Highway Number 10, broad and efficient, hurries through the heart of the Broad River Valley and is much too busy to bother with the village itself. There is a marker, however, which points down a wandering blacktop road, a marker which reads Coldwater, two miles. Just under this marker is a hand-lettered sign which says Jonathan Carter, two and one-tenth miles. Dry goods, notions, bargains of all kinds, and Notary Public. Travelers who follow this secondary road will find Jonathan in his favorite rocker on the porch of his store, his wise old eyes bestowing a kindly benediction on Broad River Valley and all its inhabitants, his cat Clementine perched on his shoulder, both of them purring in the warmth of the early spring sunshine. Yes, sir. There's not a doubt about it, Clementine. There's nothing the Lord likes better than a handicap. Now you take that tree yonder they sawed off last fall. It's putting out green shoots like a porcupine. And that crack in the new cement sidewalk. There's a dandelion pushing up through it to see what sort of spring weather we're being blessed with in cold water. Yes, sir, Clementine. The Lord sure does love and relish a downright discouraging handicap to show off his power and glory. Jonathan? Now, don't jaw at me, Sarah. I'm hurrying fast I can to the post office. That's where you told me you were going 20 minutes ago. Is that rocker as far as you've got? Yep. Got overtook by a thought and sat down to puzzle it out. Oh, stuff and pure nonsense. Fact, I got to wondering why you're twice as pretty now as when I paid off for our wedding 40 years ago. If you think you can get around me with a lot of soft soap... Sarah, now, Sarah. You know I never spoke a truer word in my life. You always were the prettiest... There are moments, Jonathan Carter, when you're purely exasperating. If you'd keep still till I can tell you what I came out here to say... You know, whatever it is I forgot, I'll mail, open, fix, empty, or tend to directly I get back from the post office, Sarah. That's a solemn promise. But you don't have to go to the post office. That's what I've been trying to tell you. Oh? Mrs. Skinner picked up the mail and left it at our back door. Oh, neighborly woman, Mrs. Skinner. Must bathe in the milk of human kindness. Well, there wasn't much. Two bills, three advertisements, and a telegram. Who's dead? Nobody's dead. It's from that Mr. Calder. Oh, well, let's see. Uh, that'd be Will Calder, take it. Lieutenant Calder. He was with the Marines. Yeah. Uh, uh, that Boston fellow that built the cabin out on the river to write books in. That's the one. Mm-hmm. Nice boy. Always liked Will. First author I ever met that didn't wear his hair like a sheepdog. What do you wire about? He's coming home Saturday. Get together a brass band to welcome him on that short notice. Now, don't you go making any fancy plans, Jonathan. 
All he wants is the cabin cleaned. And the telegram was to me. Hmm. I never know till now that you and him was that well acquainted. Why, that summer he was here, he was in to buy something nearly every day, don't you remember? Yeah. But I also recollect that was the summer I had Peggy Griffin working on my books. I planted her right by that counter of slow-moving items every time called to come in. <laughs> Got rid of six egg beaters, two gallons of sheep dip, and a hog oil I never expected to sell. Mm, well, they made a real handsome couple. Mm-hmm. I spent a deal of time studying the matter over before I matched him up. Why, Jonathan Carter, you had nothing to do with it. Well, who got Peggy to read his book and tell him how wonderful it was? Who got him to take her swimming in that red bathing suit I ordered, COD 598, dealer's discount FOB? Uh, Peggy and that Calder fellow would have gotten together without your help. And you know something? I think they had a definite understanding before he left. Oh, I'm certain sure they did. She had the same happy cat-eat-the-cream grateful look that you had when I asked you to marry me. Why, Jonathan, I never did. Well, I'm unbelieving of your good fortune. Of all the tall stories, but I haven't the time nor the inclination to argue nonsense. I'm running over to ask Mrs. Scuddy if she wants the job of cleaning. Yeah. If a customer shows up while I'm gone, see if you can stir yourself to wait on him. Yeah. And if Peggy Griffin comes in, restrain yourself just this once, Jonathan, and don't go asking questions. Won't open my mouth. Well, see that you don't. Just mind your own business and stay out of trouble till I get back. I won't talk to nobody but Clementine. No. Won't ask a question of any living soul. I give you my promise, Sarah. Between 1947 and 56, there were 482 dramas broadcast, and few use religion of any kind in the plot. This is Bill Gargan again, expressing our thanks to Walter Brennan, Beulah Bundy, Jennifer Holt, and Gene Reynolds for such delightful performances. Thanks also to Charles Taswell for his script of No Night Too Dark. You know, some of you folks listening in, you're lucky. I mean, those of you who listened with your families. I wonder if you ever really stop to think about what it means to have a family. If you love your family, and your family loves you, well... What more could a guy want? But I don't have to tell you, even though you do have a happy family life, there are times when you get a little worried, like maybe when one of the kids gets sick, very sick, and your whole family gets scared, so scared you, you don't know what to do, and you, you don't know where to turn. Well, look, have you a thought uh, about maybe saying a prayer and turning to God? No one can give you greater comfort. Yes, and no one can give you more help. Ask God to keep your family together. Ask him to keep it well and happy. You know, none of us is so self-sufficient that we can ignore God's help. None of us is so proud that we need hesitate to ask it. Just remember, you'll never know how much a prayer can do until you've said one. Ask, and ye shall receive. Doesn't that sound familiar? Before saying goodnight, I want to express our thanks to all of you who have helped make this program possible. Thanks also to Richard Sandville for directing our play tonight. Next week, our stars in the family theater will be Bing Crosby, Irene Dunn, and Dana Andrews in another story by Charles Taswell entitled J. Smith and Wife. 
Now, this is Bill Goggin saying good night, all. Next week, and in the weeks that follow, you will hear more of your favorite stars, such as Bing Crosby, Joseph Cotton, Maureen O'Hara, Gregory Peck, Lionel Barrymore, Susan Peters, Charles Bickford, Ruth Hussey, and Pat O'Brien, in plays written especially for Family Theater by the nation's leading radio dramatists and directed by the most outstanding directors. This series of the Family Theater broadcasts is produced by Bob Longnecker and comes to you through the cooperation of the Mutual Network and the actors, writers, and directors of the radio and motion picture industries. This program is broadcast overseas to our armed forces through the worldwide facilities of the Armed Forces Radio Service. This is the Mutual Broadcasting System. Bill continued to make guest appearances on radio, like on the October 13, 1948 episode of Bing Crosby's Philco Radio Time on ABC. We never gave them any trouble because uh, Carol Carroll didn't write that kind of stuff or anything that was going to be sensible, and you didn't want to get in a long argument with them. Now, a fellow like Hope, he had problems because, uh, you know, a joke's a joke, and if you get a good one and it's uh, on the borderline, you hate to give up on it. Well, we never had any problem in that direction, but the censorship was very rigid. Well, this is Bing Crosby welcoming you to Philco Radio Time. Produced and transcribed in Vancouver, British Columbia. With John Scott Trotter and his orchestra, and our talented and charming guests, Ray Milland, Marilyn Maxwell, and Joe Venuti. Now I'd like to present our Master of Ceremonies for this evening... Man of many parts in the flickers, and also known to you on the radio as Ross Dolan, detective. Mr. William Gargan, take a bow, Bill. Thank you, Bing. How about this place, Bill, huh? Some crowd. Big place. We better be good. We're quite a target up here. (laughs) Well, if they start to get restless, we can go right into a hockey game. I'll gladly play... Forward, anything you want. Say, Bing, I don't like to start right off by complaining, but... Complaining, uh, Bill. After all, if I'm a master of ceremonies here, I should have introduced you to the folks. Oh, Bill, they know me. I've been up here before. Before who? Before the Indians. <laughs> anyway, incidentally, Bill, I got a big thrill a minute ago. I really did. Mm-hmm. When uh, Chief Joe Mathias made me an honorary member of the Squamish tribe. Well, that's right. You are now Chief Thunderboyce. Yep. Thunder voice. Anyway, uh, let me be the first to compliment you on that uh, fancy headdress you're wearing. It is rather clever, isn't it? <laughs> Don't you think feathers do something for me? Oh, you're a smash in that outfit. But I can't figure out whether you remind me of uh, Sitting Bull uh, or uh, Woody Woodpecker or uh, Hedda Hopper. Hedda Hopper? <laughs> How did we miss By, uh, you? Yeah. <laughs> By the way, Bing, uh, how did they happen to make you an honorary Indian? Well, Bill, I guess it all goes back to the time when I was run over by a Pontiac. (laughs) Somehow or other, that must have thrown them a thought. Uh, Say, Bing, you have Indians for neighbors down near your Nevada ranch, don't you? Oh, yes, indeed we have. Very stylish Indians, too. You know they have a teepee with the hot and cold running water? 
You mean to say they have modern plumbing in a teepee? No, no, that's their kids' names. Hot and cold running water. <laughs> running waters are a very big family down there. Bing, uh, hmm. don't you think it's about time for a song? Our uh, dialogue is leaky. Yes, a little bit it is. I think you're right. Lucky I just happen to have a tune handy. It's a bouncy, popular cowboy thing called Hair of Gold. Tom Scott, let's saddle old paint and get to going there, huh? I came down from West Vancouver for a little change of scene, and I stopped the day in Santa Fe where I met a pretty queen. It would be in 1949 that William Gargan took on his most famous role, and in the process, became one of the first television drama detectives in broadcasting. Seemed to me like it was a long way off, and it looked like an insurmountable barrier, all the things they had to top, and I don't think anybody thought it was imminent. I didn't really pay much attention to it. I was busy with the golf and the fishing and the hunting and the trips, and I was having a good time. I was going to do what I was doing and await developments. In 1949, Bill Gargan appeared in Dynamite for Paramount Pictures. It would be his last film until 1956. On March 3rd, he appeared on Guest Star. comedy called Husband Sitter, written especially for his appearance on this program by Harry Lawrence. Of course, you know what a babysitter is, but did you ever hear of a husband sitter? <laughs> Dorothy Winfield thought that one up. The husband she wanted someone to sit with was her poker-playing husband, Albert. So she called in her young nephew, Butch, and explained the whole idea. So you see, Butch, this is a new idea, and you're the world's first husband sitter. Aren't you thrilled? Uh-huh. Now, you know what you're to do. Sure. Stick with him, keep him out of trouble. That's right. Oh, careful, here he comes. Uh, hello, Butch. Going out, darling? Yes, Albert. Tonight is my sewing class, you know. Oh, well, happy hem-stitching. Well, you won't be lonesome, dear, because Butch is here to keep you company. Yes, I'm afraid he is. Why does my brother have such repulsive little nitwits? It runs in the family, clabberhead. Oh, there's Madeline now. Goodbye, dear. Be a good boy, Butch. Okay. She isn't fooling me. I know why she had you come over. Why? To keep me from playing poker with the boys. She says it's too expensive. Huh. It's all right for her to go out. Her sewing class. Last night, she yanked out all the white hairs in my mustache. She thought they were basting threads. Ha, ha, ha. All right, so you heard it on the radio. Go turn the radio on here some more. I don't want it. I hope that's your folks wanting you home. Hello? Oh, hello. It is? You are? Well, uh, uh, I'm uh, very much interested in your proposition, but uh, at the present moment, I'm unable to participate. However, if you will hold the deal open for a short time, I may be... Uh, uh, yes, yes, that is correct. 
I believe that satisfactory arrangements can be made uh, very shortly. Uh, yes, yes. Goodbye. A uh, little business deal. I know. It was Joe and Pete and Fred, and they want you to play poker. Hmm. When your father and I were boys, I almost killed him once. Now I look at you and wonder, why didn't I? Well, let's play a game, Uncle Al. Go away. Go stick your head in the garbage grinder upper and then press that little white button. No, let's play a game. All right, then. We'll play uh, hide-and-seek. Uh, now, you hide your head in the Davenport there and count up to 10,000. And you come out and find me. Okay. One, two, three, four... Out of sight before the kid gets wise. Oh, whew. I can't run any farther. Oh, I sit down on this bench. Oh. That was a nice little run we had, wasn't it, Uncle Al? Oh, you can't win. You can't win. <laughs> Well, now that we're back home, what next, little poison? Aunt Dorothy said you'd help me with my arithmetic. Why, certainly. Uh, two plus two is four. Now get lost. Here's the first problem. If a hen and a half lays an egg and a half in a day and a half, how many eggs will six hens lay in seven days? If a hen and a half lays an egg and a half... Oh, listen, that's silly. Go tell the teacher it's silly. I gotta work it. Well, let me get the rest of it. How many hens will six eggs lay in seven days? No, no, no. I'll, I'll read it again. If a hen and a half lays an egg and a half in a day and a half, how many eggs will six hens lay in seven days? If a hen and a... Now, look. How could a half a hen lay an egg? If it was the right half, it could. Well, a hen and a half, uh, six times seven is... Uh, uh, listen. Wouldn't you rather hear a nice bedtime story? Snow White and the Seven Twerps? Now, once upon a time... Oh, I knew you snow... couldn't work it, Featherhead. It takes brains to do fifth-grade arithmetic. I'll show you if I've got brains or not. Thank goodness the grocery store is still open. Come on. We're going to take some more exercise. There, now. Is that the correct answer? Yeah. I guess you got it all right. Where is everybody? In here, in the kitchen. Wait till she sees the mess we've made. Brother. Oh, 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 my kitchen. Uh, we've been working on an arithmetic problem. Oh, all these pots and pans. All those eggs. And what are you doing with one, two, three, four, five, six red chickens? Well, it's very simple. We went to the grocery store. I bought six frozen chickens and three dozen eggs. The grocer thought he was crazy. I could easily be persuaded to agree with him. Well, we cut all the chickens in half, and we boiled the eggs and cut them in half. But why? Well, I can now tell you the answer to this problem. If a hen and a half lays an egg and a half in a day and a half, how many eggs will six hens lay in seven days? I don't know. Twenty-eight eggs. And how much did it cost you to find out... $17.87. Oh, from now on, play poker. It's cheaper. I never saw anybody say. Oh, oh, 
And that's why the Winfields have been having fried chicken, roast chicken, boiled chicken, stewed chicken, curry chicken, chicken hash, chicken giblets, and chicken croquettes these last two weeks. Now you know the story of the world's first and last husband sitter. Gargan for an amusing performance. And now, friends, before we bring Mr. Gargan back again for a curtain speech, here's Harry Sosnick and the Savings Bonds Orchestra playing Russian Lullaby. That year, he was in New York City when he phoned acquaintance Frank Folsom of RCA. Folsom invited Gargan for lunch. He went to the 53rd floor of 30 Rockefeller Center. Inside were executives from BBD&O, the New York Stock Exchange, and others. During lunch, Gargan mentioned that he was looking for a job in TV. Folsom phoned Norm Blackburn, VP of TV and Radio at NBC, and also a good friend of Gargan's. Gargan was asked if he'd be interested in playing a pipe-smoking detective, sponsored by the U.S. Tobacco Company. The show became Martin Kane, Private Eye. It would be shot for TV and separately done for radio as well. Mutual Broadcasting carried the radio series. It debuted on Sunday, August 7, 1949 at 4.30 p.m. Eastern Time. Meanwhile, the TV version aired on NBC Thursdays at 10 p.m. It was live, and the first detective series on network TV with an enormous following. Gargan realized early on that there was only so much you could do with a plot in a half hour, so he made the series a showcase for himself. He developed a tongue-in-cheek style. Kane's 37.8 TV rating for the 50-51 season was 12th overall. <laughs> The makers of those four distinctively different pipe tobaccos, Old Briar, Dill's Best, Model, and Tweed present Martin Kane, Private Eye, starring William Gargan.
Let's see. Your first name is Shirley West. For 20 years, you were the confidential secretary to John Bixby. And according to the terms of his will, you're one of the major beneficiaries. Now, what can I do for you, Miss West? Major beneficiary? Major suspect? Suspect for what? The murder of John Bixby. Oh, now, wait a minute. According to the papers here, John Bixby was killed during the commission of a robbery in his home. Well, that's for public consumption, Mr. Kane. Privately, the police believe that Mr. Bixby was cold-bloodedly and intentionally murdered. And on what do they base that theory? Oh, I don't know, sir. I do know that I've been very closely questioned, as have been the others mentioned in the will. I see. Now, about John Bixby, uh, what business was he in? Well, Mr. Bixby was an inventor and a very successful one. Mm-hmm. Any family? Only a, a nephew, Carl Bixby. Mm-hmm. No other relatives? None whatever. Mr. Bixby was a very lonely man. Now, as regards to the robbery, was there anything of value taken? Well, nothing was taken, Mr. Kane. As a matter of fact, aside from the furnishings, there's nothing in the house of actual value. Well, what about the safe? Well, Mr. Bixby kept anything of real intrinsic worth in his vaults downtown. Mm -hmm. The safe contained nothing but his will and his diary. Did you know the combination to the safe? Yes, I did, Mr. Kane. Do you know the contents of the will? Yes, I do, Mr. Kane. Well, uh, can you tell me who else is mentioned in the will? Well... There's uh, Shirley West. She gets uh, half of the estate. And then there's Steve Jensen, a massager. Uh, masseur. Yeah. Yeah. What is this, a French lesson? One who administers massage is a masseur. Oh, I see. Well, anyway, Steve Jensen, a rub-down artist, supposed to have known him for 15 years, gets uh, one quarter of the estate. And then there's this uh, Rhonda Noble. Oh, a most attractive young lady. Yeah, she's a nightclub singer with what you call operatic ambition. Uh, Mr. Bixby's protege. Yeah, yeah, protege. Well, mark her down for a quarter of the estate. Yes, sir. And then there's a $10,000 bequest to his nephew, Carl Bixby, customer's man with uh, Henry Hackett's firm. Oh, got that, sir. And then, Sergeant, down here, way down on the bottom, below his signature, and below the signatures of the attesting witnesses in what looks like his own handwriting, it states, I make the following additional bequest of $25,000 to my friend Henry Hackett. Henry Hackett, broker. That's the list of suspects, the only people in the world who could benefit by the death of John Bixby. Oh. That's Shirley West, secretary. Yeah. Steve Jensen, masseur. Right. Rhonda Noble, singer with Check. operatic ambitions. Mm -hmm. Carl Bixby, nephew, customer's man for Henry Hackett. Yeah. And Henry Hackett, broker. Yeah. Oh, who let you in? <laughs> oh, hi. Oh, quick flash of the badge, a few well-chosen words, and here I am. You dig up a client out of that bunch? Correction, Captain. The client dug me up, Miss Shirley West. Oh, yeah? Sergeant. Take this well down to the laboratory and have it looked over, but looked over good. Uh, yes, sir. Goodbye. Goodbye, Miss Kane. Bye, Sergeant. What's the picture here, Captain? The picture is murder, Marty, with a fancy frame around it. And the fancy frame is a phony burglary setup. Now, uh, would you care to sort of uh, elucidate on that for me, Captain? Elucidate, eh? Yeah. You talk like Sergeant Ross. Uh-huh. All right, I'll elucidate. This place was broken into, but whoever did it was no burglar. The locks were jimmied by a rank amateur. Mm-hmm. The locks, huh? Yeah. What about the safe? That's just it. The safe was open better than any professional could do it. Get the figure? Mm, not yet. Well, you see, whoever opened that safe knew the combination of it. And uh, 
tried to make this look like a burglary. Oh, now, wait a minute. According to Miss West, the only thing of value in that safe was the uh, will and the diary. Yeah. Yeah. That puts a poser on it, doesn't it? Yeah. Now, why should anybody want to break in here and then uh, open that safe? You're supposed to be a detective. Why, huh? Well, I don't know. Uh, except maybe to get a peek at the will, and then if they stood to gain by it, why, let them have it. Yeah, that's what we'd say. Mm -hmm. Except that when we questioned him, we found out that everybody knew what was in the will. Everybody, that is, except Henry Hackett. Uh -huh. Anybody hear the shots? Well, the servants did, but they're all way over on the other side of the house. By the time they got here, the intruder was gone. I see. Now, let me ask you something else, Marty. How long do you think a burglary like this would last? Well, I'd say, uh, oh, it wouldn't last or take over 20 minutes. Well, this one took over two hours. Over two hours? That's right. Well, now, how would you know that, Captain? Well, it's uh, simple, my dear Marty. You know that uh, massager? Yeah. Steve, uh... Jensen. Jensen, yeah. yeah. Well, he was here last night about 9 o'clock. Gave the old man a rub down, then sort of tucked him into bed. What time did he leave? Left here at 10 o'clock, exactly, by that uh, clock. You know, he gets paid by the hour, so he checked it. Well, after that, everything was nice and quiet. But uh, we happen to know just about when this burglar was here. How come? Well, you see, Marty, this is an electric clock. It stopped at 11.10. By mistake, the burglar must have uh, knocked out the plug. Now, by the time the shots were fired and the burglar was here, it was 2 o'clock. Now, why should anybody be here over two hours? Riddle me that one, detective. Riddle me that one. Gargan later said, This was TV's early era, but a few people tried to make the casual intimacy of TV a sexual intimacy. The sight of a pretty woman with a touch of deep cleavage, a show of dye, became to these producers more important than the content of the show. The result was we often had pretty empty-headed girls blowing their lines all over the lot. In desperation, I began to mug for the camera more, and the scriptwriters began to write more blatantly. You get into a terrible rut this way. Everybody works harder to undo the damage, and the result is more screeching, overacting, and overwriting. It drives the viewers away, and to get them back, you come up with more and more desperate gimmickry. What was worse, to me, was the embarrassment. I'm no prude. Probably the best part I ever did on film was that of Joe, and they knew what they wanted. A wife-stealer. But this was just sleazy. The next season, the show's rating fell out of the top 30. By then, Gargan was good friends with New York's Cardinal Spellman. A friend of Gargan's mentioned that the Cardinal watched the show. Gargan went to the studio execs and told them to write better scripts or get another star. They got another star. Lloyd Nolan. After 85 weeks, Bill Gargan was no longer Martin Kane. Shortly after, Gargan signed a deal with Sonny Werblin, then of MCA, to do a new private eye show for NBC. The show would eventually be called Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator.
From the stage of the Empire Theatre, just off the Champs-Élysées, in the heart of Paris, France, you are about to be entertained by some of the biggest names in show business. For the next hour and 30 minutes, you will hear such bright stars as... Fred Allen. Josephine Baker. Gracie Fields. Joan Fontaine. Bill Gargan. Fernand Grave. Georges Guettari. Portland Harper. George Sanders. Meredith Wilson. And my name, darlings, is Tallulah Bankhead. The National Broadcasting Company presents The Big Show. The Big Show. When Bill Gorgon was fired from Martin Kane, he planned to star in a Broadway rendition of Dr. Knock. In late September of 1951, Gargan signed a $1 million contract that made him the exclusive property of NBC for the next five years. The deal required him to participate in a minimum of four guest spots on radio and TV each year. At the same time, he was invited by Frank Folsom of RCA to accompany him to Rome to meet the Pope. Along the way, Gargan went to Paris to appear in the October 7, 1951 episode of The Big Show. He participated in a sketch involving a poker game with George Sanders, Fernand Gravy, and Meredith Wilson. Well, darlings, I simply must tell you about a most exciting experience I had the other day here in Paris. I was walking along the Champs-Élysées when suddenly I found myself in conversation with a dashing, attractive American. Pardon me, but haven't I seen you somewhere before? Well, I wouldn't doubt it. My name is Bill Gargan. Of course, of course, Bill Gargan, the NBC radio and television star. How nice to see you again. And how nice for you to carry your own applause along the Champs-Élysées. <laughs> I'm sorry, but you have the advantage of me. And not yet I haven't, darling. <laughs> My name is Tallulah Bankhead. Oh, sure. The radio announcer. Uh, <laughs> isn't he sweet? Tell me, Bill, what are you doing in Paris? Oh, I'm here on a holiday, seeing the sights, having a good time. Well, wouldn't you like a gay, charming, attractive companion? Well, I might. Uh, you know anybody? <laughs> well, thank you, darling. I'd be glad to. Oh, oh, you mean... Uh, oh, I didn't know you were talking. Well, uh, that is, if, uh, if you... Uh, uh, I wasn't, uh, what I meant... When you come uh, well, to a good place to stop, stop. <laughs> well, you see, Tallulah, I'm, well, uh, I'm a lone wolf. You and me both, brother. <laughs> so, how about it, Bill? I'm just dying to go on the town. Will you be at my hotel at eight, darling? Well, okay, I'll be there, I guess. Unless... Unless what? Unless I get hit by a French taxi. Ah, <laughs> uh, who can be that lucky? Well, hello. Oh, George Sanders, how are you? Good evening, Tallulah. Uh, I, I, I'm sorry I kept you waiting. I was hoping... I mean, I was afraid you'd be gone. <laughs> kept me waiting? You mean, did I? I mean, that is... Uh, well, you suppose? I, I mean, well, I didn't... I mean, I, what I mean to say is... When I... you come to a good place to stop, stop. <laughs> oh, do come in, George. I'm so glad to see you. Oh, really? Uh, yes, you see, when I ran into you today at the Champs-Élysées, you didn't sound too sure you could come. Oh, may I present a friend of mine, Mr. Sanders? This is Monsieur Fernand Gravet. How do you do, Mr. Sanders? I'm happy to know you. Thank you. 
Haven't I met you before? No, I don't think so. Now, didn't I see you running down the Champs-Élysées this afternoon? <laughs> oh, yes, that, that was just after I met, and uh, she... I, I mean, when I was running from... <laughs> that is, I, I, well, don't worry, when I come to a good place to stop, I'll stop. <laughs> well, this is certainly an unexpected pleasure, having both charming gentlemen. Oh, excuse me, there's somebody at the door. Well, Bill Gargan, hello, come in. Uh, I'm not too late, huh? Oh, not at all. <laughs> oh, Bill, did you bring those for me? What beautiful gloves. <laughs> you shouldn't have. I didn't. They're mine. Let go of them. <laughs> oh, Bill, I want you to meet two very charming gentlemen. This is Monsieur Grave, Mr. Gargan. How do you do? Hi. And George Sanders. Do you know Bill Gargan? Uh, I don't believe I've ever had the time. I think I... I think I met you before. Didn't I see you running down the Champs-Élysées this afternoon? There seems to be an echo here. Well, gentlemen, which will it be? One of you is taking me out tonight. How about a hand of poker to see who takes her out? Good poker it is. Here's a, a deck of cards. Stacked, I'll wager. Oh, darling, that's the sweetest thing you've said to me all evening. Now, please, Tallulah, no favoritism. Okay, I've dealt each man a hand of poker. Oh, before you look at it, fellas, how about betting a dollar on the side to make it more interesting? I go on my... Here's my dollar. No, oh, here's mine. Well, I don't have a dollar. I have this 10,000-franc note. Okay, put that in. You owe us the other 50 cents. <laughs> Now, uh, Fernand, uh, what is your hand? Well, I think I'll take four cards. Oh, uh, this isn't draw poker. What have you got? Oh, a full house. <laughs> you think you have trouble. I have four aces. Four aces? What's your next card? <laughs> what difference does it make? What have you got? I must have walked under a ladder today. I got a straight flush. <laughs> Excuse me, darling. Someone's at the door. Well, Portland Hopper, what are you doing here? Well, Fred couldn't make it, so he asked me to come. Good. So long, Tallulah. Perhaps some other time, Tallulah. Good night, Tallulah. It's been quite dull. Where did everybody go? Now, never you mind, Portland. Come on. You and I are going for a walk on the Champs-Élysées, and here's the way we do it. We walk up and say... I beg your pardon. Haven't we met somewhere before? And then we say... Two weeks after his big show appearance, Gargan was starring in a new series for NBC. I think there is something so special between the listener and the other side of the microphone in the studio. Very special. I don't feel I'm talking to two men now. I feel I'm talking to a whole world. All of the people that you have created for me because of what you're doing. How many shows were you doing a week? I did as many as four and five shows a day. Oh. I did Terry and the Pirates and Dick Tracy back to back. And early in the day, I would do David Harum. And then I would do a half hour of Grand Central Station and so on. I would say that somewhere between 35 and 40,000 broadcasts passed through my hands. Launched as part of NBC's year-long Silver Jubilee. Barry Crane, Confidential Investigator, first aired over NBC from New York on Wednesday, October 3, 1951 at 10 p.m. Eastern Time. 
Bill Gargan debuted The Detective, opposite Mr. President on ABC, Frank Edwards on Mutual, and Boxing on CBS. The show was directed by the just-heard Hyman Brown. By 1952, Brown had been involved in radio for decades. What would you consider yourself, High? What was your label in radio? Because you directed, you also created. What do you, and what level do you think of yourself? I never had a label. It was a way of life. I created a show, I produced a show, I sold a show. I didn't put a label on myself, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. but I belonged to the AFTRA, to the Guild, because occasionally I'd play a taxi cab driver. The big gag was Everett Sloan would go around and tell everybody that I would give him the wrong times for the repeats. We'd have to do a repeat for the West Coast. So I'd give him the wrong time. That would mean that they didn't show up so I could play the part. But believe me, I'll never forget Myra McCormick saying, Hi, it's 10 minutes to 12, and Inner Sanctum has to go on. Do you know where I am? <laughs> I said, where are you? He said, Newark. Oh, oh no. Oh, no. Oh, I played his part oh. wonderfully. Don't. <laughs> they, all, they, all, they all used to rip me about that. But I'm a frustrated actor. I wouldn't put a label on myself. Yeah. Mm -hmm. No, it was, I don't know that we had labels. The Barry was inspired by the nickname of William Gargan's oldest son, then 22. The title of the show was soon changed to Barry Craig, Confidential Investigator. Episode 3 was called The Judge and the Champ. Hello, Craig speaking. I wanted to read you my leave for tomorrow's column. I... Oh, at the door. Hold the line, Barry, while I see who it is. Oh, you, look, I told you it's no use coming here. You're just wasting your time. My life's too short. Confidential Investigator, starring William Gargan. Barry Craig speaking. It was one of those nights. I was sitting in my office with my feet hooked on the corner of my desk, trying to whip up some enthusiasm over an assignment to bodyguard a couple of tin coffee pots at a Long Island wedding when the telephone rang. I let it ring a few times before I reached out and snagged it off its hook. After all, when they're that anxious, they can be mighty worthwhile. Yeah, who's this? Al White from the Chronicle. Remember me? Oh, Al White, sure. How's the gossip column racket these days? Warming up. I got a chore for you. I'll bet you have. Meaning what? I've been reading that column of yours. Those cracks you've been making about Larry Slade throwing the big fight, they can't have made him very happy. I hear he's looking for you. Yeah, so do I. I need a bodyguard. You keep printing that Slade took a dive and you're more likely to need an undertaker. I was right about it, wasn't I? I even called around. Sometimes there's something better to be than right. Such as? Alive. Something you're not likely to be if you keep needling Slade. He's big and sensitive. My heart bleeds for him. Look, do you want this job or not? All right, Al. Where do I start guarding the body? The Casa Daily Bar. Midnight. 
It wasn't the kind of case I'd like, but a private detective is like a doctor or a lawyer. He can't always pick and choose. Anyway, a few minutes short of midnight, I parked the car outside the Casa Daly. It was an old white frame building that Ace Daly had converted into a plush boob trap. One of those joints where if they don't get your roll with the fancy prices at the bar, they got the back rooms all rigged up with roulette wheels and crap tables where they do. I was holding down the bar with an elbow, squinting through the fog of blue-gray smoke when my client, Al White, walked in. Waiting long? Not very. Seen Ace Daly? Yeah, he went in the game room a little while ago. Larry Slade with him? Champ? No, why? Just a hunch. He'll be here, too, before the night's over. Daly's in the game room now, huh? Why the interest in Ace Daly? I thought you were after Slade's hide. Maybe I'm after both of them. You think Ace had a hand in fixing that fight? Yeah, and tonight I'm looking for proof. Any objection? Sure skin, if you like to wear it with holes in it. That's what I'm paying you to prevent. Maybe we better make this one uh, cash in advance. <laughs> and she trusts me? Oh, sure. I just don't want to have to go to the trouble of suing your estate to get my money. Oh, very funny. Hey, 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 wait a minute. You must read tea leaves. Huh? Don't look now, but your old friend, the ex-champ, just came in. Is he heading this way? No, he's going on through into the gaming room. Good. What's good about it? I had a tip slave would be showing up for the payoff tonight. It settled it. He dumped the fight and Daly paid him to do it. You still haven't got any proof of a payoff. With a little luck, we might even get that. What are you going to do, follow Slade in? Not yet. Give him a minute or two head start. He won't go direct to Daly's office. He'll probably waste a couple of minutes looking around in the gaming room. Just to make sure he isn't being followed. Now, if we time it right, we may catch him in the act. And if we do, I'll have the biggest story of the year. I only hope you live to write it. I'll write it. Don't you worry about me. All right, then. I'll worry about me. I only hope that I live to read it. Conjunction with NBC's 25th anniversary, the network launched a series of both radio and TV offerings, highlighting the growth of NBC's technology, talent, infrastructure, and advertising success. Block sharing advertising was in full effect. The network sold commercial time spots rather than full shows and called it Operation Tandem. Gargan was back on the big show the next March 16, 1952, to celebrate St. Patrick's Day with Tallulah Bankhead and good friend and fellow Catholic, Fred Allen. Well, darlings, how about those St. Patrick's Day's greetings? You've had plenty of time. Some of the most important speeches were written quickly. Now, I remember when I was on a train once, a man borrowed an envelope from me and scribbled on it for a few moments, and that turned out to be the Gettysburg Address. (laughs) What am I saying? (laughs) All right, let's hear from, uh, well, how about you, Bill Gargan? Dear Tallulah, I'd like to give you some advice on this St. Patrick's Day. If you lay off the Irish stuff, the snakes will go away. (laughs) Darlings, last week in our quest for the kind of story which would please you on the big show, we chanced upon a wry little classic from the droll pen of John Collier. It has just the suspenseful angle and the macabre twist to tingle your nerves. It has two, as the star lead, the distinguished actor, Mr. William Gargan, whose exciting new series, 
Barry Craig, confidential investigator, opens on NBC Radio next Tuesday night. But now Mr. Gargan in the role of Dr. Rankin brings us John Collier's story, Demortius. <laughs> Dr. Rankin was a large and raw-boned man, on whom the newest suit at once appeared outdated, like a suit in a photograph of 20 years ago. He had those huge and clumsy hands, which can be an asset to a doctor in a small upstate town where people still retain a rural relish for paradox. Thinking that the more ape-like the paw, the more precise it can be in the delicate business of tonsillectomy. This conclusion was perfectly justified in the case of Dr. Rankin. For example, on this particular fine morning, though his task was nothing more ticklish than the cementing over of a large patch on his cellar floor, he managed those large and clumsy hands with all the unfurried certainty of one who would never leave a sponge within or create an unsightly scar without. Hey, Doc. Hey, anybody home? Hey, Doc, the fish are biting. Let's go. Ah, guess he's out. Okay, we'll leave a note. Say we're down at the creek and to come on down. Well, we could tell Irene, but well, she's not here either. You'd think she'd be around. Yeah, you said it, bud. Just look at this table where you could write your name in the Shh. dust. But Look, he, he must be down in the cellar. Okay. What? Doc, there you are. <laughs> Did you hear us yelling? I, uh... Thought I heard someone up there. Well, we was bawling our heads off. Thought there was nobody home. Where's Irene? Uh, visiting. Uh, she's gone visiting. Hey, what goes on here? What are you doing, Doc? Burying one of your patients or what? Oh, there's been water seeping up through the floor. I figured it might be some spring opened up or something. You don't say. Yeah. Uh, oh, gee, Doc, I sold you this property. Don't say I fixed you up with a dump where there's an underground spring. Well, it was water. That's all I know, bud. Yeah, but, Doc, you can look on that geological map the Kiwanis Club got up. There's no better section of subsoil in the town. It looks like Bud sold you a lemon, Doc. No, 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 no. Look, when the Doc came to this town, he was green. You, you'll admit he was green. <laughs> the, the things he didn't know. <laughs> yeah, he bought Ted Weber's jalopy. <laughs> yeah, he'd have bought the Jessup place if I'd let him, but I wouldn't give him a bum steer. Okay, okay, I was green. I admit it. Listen to him. Just a poor, simple city slicker from Poughkeepsie. Yeah, some people would have taken him. Maybe some people did, but not me. No, I recommended this property. He and Irene moved straight in as soon as they were married. Now, I wouldn't have put Doc onto a dump where there'd be a spring under the foundation. Oh, forget it. I, I guess it was just the heavy rain. My gosh, look at that pickaxe. You certainly went deep enough, right right down into the clay. Huh? Yeah, that's four feet down, the clay. Uh, 18 inches. Oh, four feet, I can show you on the map. Oh, all right, no arguments, boys. Hey, what do you say we get out of the creek, Doc? They're biting. Oh, I, I can't do it, boys. I... Got to see a patient or two. Oh, live and let live, Doc. Give him a chance to get better. Are you going to depopulate the whole darn town? <laughs> oh, I got to make my rounds, boys. Sorry, the fish will have to wait. Well, I, I guess we'll have to take no for an answer. Yeah, we, we'd better be getting along. Uh, how's uh, Irene, Doc? Oh, never better. She's gone visiting. Albany. Got the 11 o'clock train. 11 o'clock? For Albany? Oh, uh, did I say Albany? Uh, Watertown, I meant. Oh, 
friends in Watertown? Yeah, Mrs. Slater. Mr. and Mrs. Slater. Lived next door to them when she was a kid, Irene said. Uh, over on Sycamore Street. Slater? Yeah. N next door to Irene? Mm -hmm. No. Oh, yes, yes. She was telling me all about them last night. She got a letter. Seems this Mrs. Slater looked after her when her mother was in the hospital one time. No. Nope. Mm -mm. Well, that's, that's what she told me. Of course, it was a good many years ago. Look, Doc, Bud and I were raised in this town. We've known Irene's folks all our lives. We were in and out of their house all the time. There was never anybody next door called Slater. Well, perhaps she married again, this woman. Perhaps it was a different name. Oh, do you mind moving your feet? I'd, I'd better smooth out this rough place in the cement. Uh, no, Doc. It wasn't a different name. What, uh, what, what time did Irene go to the station, Doc? Oh, uh, about a quarter of an hour ago. You didn't drive her? No, she walked. We came down Main Street. We didn't meet her. Well, maybe she walked across the pasture. Oh, that's a tough walk with a suitcase. Oh, she just had a couple of things in a little bag. I don't get it, Doc. I... Bud. Yeah. Holy smoke. Oh, gosh, Doc. A guy like you... What in the name of heaven are you two bloody fools thinking? What are you trying to say? A spring. I ought have known right away it wasn't any spring. Am I crazy or are you? You suggest that I... That Irene, my wife? Oh, go on. Get out of here. Yeah, go and get the sheriff. Tell him to come here and start digging. You, come on, get out, both of you. I... I don't know, Buck. It isn't as if he didn't have the provocation. Lord knows. You know and I know. The whole town knows. But try try telling it to a jury. What is it? Now what are you trying to say? What do you mean? If this isn't being on a spot. Well, Doc, you can see how it is. It, it takes some thinking. And we've been friends right from the start. Darn good friends. But we got to think, Doc. This, this is serious. Provocation or not, there's a law in the land. There's... There's such a thing as being an accomplice. You were talking about provocation. You're right, Doc. And you're our friend. And if ever it could be called justified... Justified? You were bound to get wised up sooner or later. Yeah, we could have told you, but what the heck. Yes, yes, we could. And, and, and we nearly did five years ago. Well, you hadn't been here for six months. But, well, we sort of cottoned to you. Sort of giving you a hint. You spoke about it, remember, Buck? Yeah, I remember. A, a decent, straightforward guy comes to a place like this and marries the town flirt. And nobody tells him. Everybody just watches. That's funny. I came right out in the open about that Jessup property. I, I, I wouldn't let you buy that, but... Getting married, that, that's something else again. Well, I'm... I'm 50. I suppose I am pretty old for Irene. And I know a lot of people think she's not exactly a perfect wife. Maybe she's not. She's young, full of life. Oh, skip it, Doc, skip it. No, no, no. I'm sort of a dry fellow, kind of dull. But she's not much of a housekeeper. No, she ain't. And she's not very deep mentally. I don't care. She's lazy, no system. I've got plenty of system. She's childish. That's it. Like a child. But even so, that she would behave like that. Uh-huh. Uh, well, Doc, the, the town will be on your side. Yeah, but that won't mean much when the trial comes up in the county seat. Yeah, I guess you're right. I've been so upset, so mixed up. 
What'll I do, boys? What'll I do? Uh, it's up to you, bud. I can't turn him in. Well, I... Uh, well, take it easy, Doc. Uh, calm down. Uh, look, Buck, when we came in here, the street was empty, wasn't it? I guess so. Anyway, nobody saw us come down in the cellar. And, and we haven't been down. You get that, Doc? We shouted upstairs, hung around a minute or two, and then cleared out. But we never came down into this cellar. I wish you hadn't. All you have to do is say Irene went out for a walk and never came back. Buck and I can swear we saw her headed out of town with a, with a fella in a tan coupe. We'll fix it. We better scram. And remember, Doc, we were never down here. So long. We're for you, Doc. So long now. <laughs> I'm down here, Irene. Oh. <sighs> there you are, honey pie. Can you beat it? I missed the darn train. Oh? Did uh, you come back across the field? Yeah, like a dope. I could have hitched a ride and caught the train up the line, only I didn't think. If you'd run me over to the junction, Doc, I could still make it. Maybe. Did you meet anyone coming back? Not a soul. Aren't you finished with that old cement job yet? No. I'm afraid I'll have to take it all up again. Come over here, my dear, now. I'll show you. Now with transcription widespread, Barry Craig could be heard on different days each week based on the region. Listeners would also hear different commercials, depending on what affiliate they were tuning into. These could also be a mix of local and national ad spots. Block sharing was being used by the other networks. ABC touted theirs as the Pyramid Plan, CBS as the Power Plan, and Mutual called theirs MBS Plus. In a further refinement of MBS Plus, Mutual introduced an exclusive package of MGM programming for 1952. Both The Adventures of Harry Lyme and The Black Museum aired as part of this deal. For more info, tune into Breaking Walls, episode 141. This is The Big Show, act two, and here is Tallulah Bankhead chatting with Bill Gargan. Well, Bill, it's been a long time since I saw you. It was last summer in Paris, wasn't it? Faith and that it was, Tallulah. Sure and Magora. You're looking well, Willie, me by. And sure, you're a lovely sight to these old eyes. Ladies and gentlemen, this is the mystery voice. <laughs> the two actors on stage are conversing in what they fondly believe to be Irish dialect. <laughs> I will translate what they are saying. I am qualified to translate Irish because I am a three-time loser in the Irish sweepstakes. <laughs> when we were in Paris, I was wishing we could have gone out together, Colleen. I've thought of you often, Colleen. I've missed you, Colleen. He keeps calling her Colleen because he's forgotten her name. <laughs> Footnote, a Colleen is a female collie. Ah, oh, William, still handing out the same malarkey. It's full of the old Nick, you are. Old Nick. He reminds her of old Nick Kenny. <laughs> Footnote, Nick Kenny is a mythical Irish leprechaun. <laughs> Tell me, girl, after we finish up this hour and a half wake... 
Let us go, you and I, to have a wee bit of the creature. He wants to go to see a Betty Davis picture. <laughs> sure, and Begora. Translation, over my dead body. <laughs> and after that, we'll go for a stroll on the boardwalk and get some good old Irish grub, a hot dog. That's Coney Island. <laughs> ah, Tallulah, you're a fine broth of a girl. Broth in Gaelic is spelled B-R-O-A-D. Ah, <laughs> oh, William, talking to you is like a breath of old Ireland. She means a breath of old Irish. Hey, fellas, is there any room for another paisan in here? Paisan, that's what old Irish is. It's real paisan. What is it, Frank? I'm busy. Well, I'm sorry, Tallulah, but I'm rather upset. See, I don't understand why Bill Gargan gets to act in a dramatic sketch, and I don't. Well, darling, you can't act. I can act as well as you can. What do you mean you can act as well as I can act? Well, I can act as well as you can sing. <laughs> now, look, I'd like to put on a little dramatic... You better laugh it up, it's getting late now. <laughs> I'd like to put on a little dramatic sketch and carry on from where Bill ended his story. How about it? I know. You can act in it with me. Oh, well, Meredith, some mood music, if you please. Launched with their tandem plan, NBC provided a pay-as-you-sell opportunity for local affiliates. Local sponsors could pick from 119 one-minute spots. The goal was to accommodate sponsors without a long contract. Radio drama takes your imagination, embraces the listener like nothing else in the history of theater. I told you earlier that I gave his first job to a man like Irwin Shaw. Mm -hmm. For all of his life, he said, his novels were successful because he learned about writing dialogue. Mm -hmm. Dialogue sets the scene, not long narratives. You set emotions by dialogue not by long, descriptive passages. Craig occupied an office on the third floor of the Mercantile Building on Manhattan's Madison Avenue. Barry Craig's writers included Frank Kane, Louis Vitties, John Robert, and Ernest Canoy. I came into the office. Now, later on, I did work at home and came into the office, wandered around. But that was much later when I was really doing more. At the beginning, all of NBC's sustaining dramatic programs were written by the staff. And you did it in the office under the supervision of the editor, and that was it. So you worked very hard and turned out one, two scripts a week. Sometimes you had two weeks if it was an hour show. And it was very, as you can see in the list, it did an awful lot. William Gargan was supported by some of the finest East Coast voice talents of the era. This included Santos Ortega, Elspeth Eric, Arlene Blackburn, Barbara Weeks, Joan Alexander, Parker Fenley, Arnold Moss, Louis Van Ruten, and Herb Ellis. The people in radio, from producers, directors, agency, were the most marvelous friends. I mean, they were just a great, great bunch of people to work with. The motion picture business and the TV business, to me, became a bore. And I've had some pretty fair successes, and I work with some nice people. But all in all, I don't like those people. That's my personal opinion. 
But well, you the, don't get a chance to like them. You know, you don't get thrown together like that. And like the agency, do. but working now in commercials, at achieving the ripe old age of 40 that I have achieved. 40 what? 40 what? 40, 41, 2. Who cares? You want to go? Uh, Anyway, go for double? I'm now working. I'm now working with uh, 30 to let's say 25 to 35 to 40 year old people who are very bright, art directors, writers, producers, creative people, and they are so bright and there's so much fun in the creation of an on-camera commercial. Uh, I did a lot of commercials with Howard Z, for example, became a very, you know, big uh, film director. Stan Dragati, who became a film director. But all of those things were so creative and had so much fun that uh, it it's a joy to do a commercial as opposed to a, to a picture or a television, for me. NBC announcers included Don Pardo and Ed King, with John Daly as spokesperson for the 52 Pontiac Spots, and Carl Caruso for Bramo Seltzer. Mm -hmm. By using a group that was familiar one with the other, also you had a kind of group ensemble playing. The sure. actors related to each other magnificently. There was a warmth and a camaraderie and a respect in the studio that I don't think you'll find on any set or any stage anywhere else. I'm very proud of that. All of the people that I have ever worked with, going back to the 30s, are still with me. She must have made 30, 40 films. 50 well, I'll films. tell you what happened. In those days, we were very, very, very busy in radio. When television came around, all of the writers and producers and directors from radio were the early pioneers of television. Like Jess Oppenheimer was the producer of Lucy. So we knew them all. We'd say, hey, how about it? He'd say, yeah, I got something coming up, available next week. So I was very, very busy in the early days of television. So we just drifted with the people that we knew and they felt comfortable with us. I'll tell you, one of the saddest days of my life was when they changed from a six-day week to a five-day week. The early television shows, most of them would shoot for three days. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. Now, all of a sudden, there's a five-day week. Now, you can't do two shows a week. You can do Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, and Friday. Now, the Thursday and Friday one's going to carry over to Monday. Now, you can't do Monday, Tuesday. Oh, boy, that was terrible. By 1954, 98% of homes had a radio set. There were still 19 million U.S. homes that could only be reached by radio. Procter & Gamble led the way with over $14 million spent, and 40 companies, including General Foods, Colgate-Palmolive, Liggett & Myers, Campbell Soups, S.C. Johnson, and Coca-Cola, spent at least $1 million on radio advertising. However, the four national networks continued a five-year downward trend in radio ad sales. Network radio gross revenue peaked in 1948 at just under $200 million. In 1953, it was down to 160 million. 
While TV hadn't fully supplanted radio's total reach, it had decimated its primetime audience share. On CBS TV, I Love Lucy led all shows with a rating of 58.8. It was seen in over 15 million homes. Radio's top show, the Lux Radio Theater, was heard in just under 3 million. The networks reduced ad sale charges for a sixth consecutive year, hoping to offset TV's broadening market share. It didn't work. For the first time in 16 years, revenue fell. The only category to see an increase in sales was local advertising, and even that rose less than 1%. Shows canceled in the first half of 1954 included The Quiz Kids, Dr. Christian, Front Page Farrell, Bulldog Drummond, Rocky Fortune, Ozzy and Harriet, and The Six Shooter. West Coast actors like Herb Vigran and Herb Ellis were moving into TV, but television was already going through budgetary changes. I also think you have to remember the early days of television were half-hour cowboy or sitcom. So if you had, let's say, 30 half-hours of shows, let's say five shows in one night, seven days a week is 35 shows, okay? Ultimately, they started the live Playhouse 90s, and so they found the hour format. And so we're talking about now actors and craft, guild people, where they used to be all of these different crews working on all these half-hour shows. All of a sudden, one whole crew and one whole bunch of actors Cutting disappeared. Half. Cut in half. And then ultimately, hour and a half. And then huge sales of motion pictures to television. And you cut those hour and a halves by Boku, and you had nothing from 1959 to 1966 or seven or eight, there was a tremendous unemployment. I remember sitting at the Brown Derby with McDonald Carey. We had done a Jason, and uh, Ricardo Montalban came by and sat down. And they were talking about how they were being asked to take a cut. This is about 1952 or three that they were being asked to take a cut. The producers already started to cut down on the wage scale. And the scale that Ricardo Montalban was being asked to work for was a scale that I had finally worked myself up to. And I said, holy cow, if, he's, if McDonald Carey and Ricardo Montalban are going to be asked to work for that kind of money, where do I have to go back to the $65 a day well, minimum? And it, boy, it happened. They just went right down the toilet. What I mean, happened is that they used to call these little bits that we played, like uh, that went for a day or two or with two, three, four pages, they called them cameos and they'd give them to a star. Radio's top show, People Are Funny, had a rating of 8.4. Along with oncoming transistor sets, nearly 30 million cars now had radios, but there was still no system to measure this audience. The next year it was estimated out-of-home listening added an additional 40% to at-home audiences. People Are Funny's actual rating was closer to a 12. But these incidentals didn't matter to the industry's character actors. Network production habits were changing. More and more documentaries and news were airing from New York. More and more drama was airing from Los Angeles. And they'd give the star like a top salary of uh, $1,000. $1,000. And you know, we finally worked our way up to 
two, three, yeah. four, five hundred dollars a yeah. day. Well, you know how many days you work. You don't. So work they could put many. the star's name on the marquee. There's one other thing to answer your question too. As I said, I was so busy when television started, but suddenly there was so much television going on out here that the actors in New York started swarming oh. out here. Well, Now, okay. when the actors swarmed out here, the directors followed. And when all the directors came out here, they started using the New York actors had been their friends that they were familiar and with. The, and the guys with. who had been doing a lot of television, like me, suddenly it ain't there anymore. We, it was a very dry period. That's that right. Herb's talking about. Very dry. It was tough. Yeah. I was lucky to have found cocaine and marijuana, and I was. <laughs> That summer, NBC shifted the production of Barry Craig to Hollywood. escape into a different world. It's a podcast frozen in time and space where anything can happen. Be intrigued. I'm ready to confess to the crime of murder. Be in suspense. What is that sound? Be entertained. Go ahead, suck on that straw, you. Be moved to tears. No! Be transported back in time. Terror on the air. Tune in on Spotify, SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, keep your volume turned up for terror. New York radio back then probably was a little bit more flexible because they were trying to borrow people from the theater, from the stage, you know, when they could. But I'm only guessing as to why it was different. I had no difficulty getting into commercial radio in New York because it was never an option. I was dragged across, still in uniform, from Air Force radio to civilian radio, still doing both, you know, doing military and civilian shows in the same day, in the same week, still in uniform, waiting for points to pile up. The war long over, because as it happened. My immediate superior in the Air Force Radio Propaganda Unit Number One was in commercial radio. Had been in commercial radio. We had been at school together in New Haven. We had done broadcasts together before the war on the Yankee Network in New Haven, Connecticut, with him playing the piano and me reading words. And then I found him uh, as my director producer. He was a captain, and I was closest they could get me to civilian. They kept on tearing stripes off my sleeves as fast as I could sew them up, and uh, we went right across from Air Force Radio to the Carrington Playhouse. Lane Carrington was the queen of soap opera writers in daytime soaps, and had gotten a nighttime hour-long melodrama that would have been the radio equivalent of Dallas, and. We had it on the air. I think it was CBS, 
and all of us who were in uniform were in there doing the Carrington Playhouse. So I never had any difficulty cracking New York radio. After 11 orders of 13 Barry Craig installments, production of the show moved from New York to Hollywood with the July 6th, 1954 episode. The August 24th episode was called Blood Money. William Gargan stars as Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Overexertion can be dangerous, folks, but no exercise at all is even worse. Complete inactivity can only mean you're either muscle-bound or dead. The National Broadcasting Company presents William Gargan in another transcribed drama of mystery and adventure with America's number one detective, Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Barry Craig speaking. Every profession has its system of reciprocal favors among colleagues. A doctor consults a fellow practitioner. Lawyers put their heads together. And even private police operatives requisition each other's time and brain power. The colleague and competitor who sought my aid one fine day was a chap named Max Marcy. Marcy operated a one-man investigation agency a half mile from the dump I call my own. Not too young, Marcy. Long in years. Ready for retirement, but too poor to afford it. Uh, I'm 35 years in the business, Craig. I'm afraid there's only one way I know of to quit. Feet first, huh? In a pine box, yes. What keeps you coppering, Max, when you could be riding a rocking chair? Uh, the same thing that started me working three decades ago. Food, shelter, and the high cost of government? A livelihood, yes. Nothing socked away, Max? Oh, maybe $500 in war bonds. Not much for a lifetime in harness. You know, there's an old axiom, Craig. Yeah, it's up there on my wall, reading Cops Die Broke. Work for me, Craig. On what? The man I frankly find impossible to locate. For three weeks now, I've used every trick I know, every avenue. His name? Anatole Barber. The only clue I have is that he was once a rug dealer. A rug dealer? Oriental rugs. Fifteen years ago, he had a store on Third Avenue. Cold trail, huh? Cold like ice. Who assigned you to look for Anatole Barber? Well, that information is confidential. I understand. Client doesn't want his name bandied about. So you're really stuck, huh, Max? Oh, not so much stuck as... Uh, as? Sick. Exhausted. I, I don't have the old strength. You know, the, the machine runs down. This coming October, I'm 64, Craig. Then why not just dump a tough case? Why aggravate yourself? $2,000. Who can dump $2,000? <laughs> no cop I know. Find Anatole, Barber. I'll split with you. Uh-uh. The fee's all yours. I'll just tap you for expenses. Barber, a one-time rug dealer. You've, of course, got a full description of him. Uh, even a photograph. Oh, Craig, I, I don't know how to thank you. I'm not doing it for you, Max. I'm really doing it for me. I look at you and I see me. Me a quarter of a century hence. I'm out asking a younger cop to help me stay in business. One cop runs into a blank wall. Another cop finds a door through the wall. The luck of the game. 
What was tough for Max Marcy was easy for me, as it turned out. An ex-Oriental rug dealer is a member of a clan. The tricky science of rugs limits the colony of dealers to a small, tight elite. One big family of operators, so to speak. My information on Anatole Barber came from a gentleman named Amar Serebi. Yes, Anatole Barber is well known to me. Under which rug is he hiding? Mm, for a long time now, Anatole is not in our trade. He had a store on Upper Third Avenue some 15 years ago, I hear. Yes, the Mecca Bazaar. He was the cleverest trader of all of us, Anatole. But he folded his tent. Why he gave up his business, nobody knows. You make it sound mystifying. Mm. Fine oriental rugs are more than a business, Mr. Craig. They are a culture and a passion. I might even say a cult. It is in our blood. Now, really enlighten me, huh? Where can I find your renegade colleague, Anatole Baba? He lives in Sackett Bay. Uh, Sackett Bay out in Long Island? Yes. He's using his mother's name now, Belmar. His mother was English. Anatole Belmar. Yes. Tell me, how is it you have Anatole Baba Belmar's whereabouts at your fingertips? Uh, we have a trade association. I am corresponding secretary. Even though Anatole is retired from our trade, he has faithfully kept up his dues. I see. Well, I want to thank you, Mr. Serebi. I've been privileged. Uh, you are perhaps interested in a fine Bokhara rug at a great sacrifice price. Mr. Serebi, please, let go of my coat lapels. I phoned Max Marcy the good news. Hello, Max. Yes, Craig? That $2,000 fee, start spending it. You found Anatole Barber? Anatole Baba Belmar. He's using his mother's maiden name. Lives out in Sackett Bay. 30 miles out in Long Island, Max. Craig, I'm at a loss for words. Why, it's hardly been 12 hours. No bouquets, Max. It happens. The breaks. I got the breaks. Okay for me to follow through in Sackett Bay? Uh, just to verify his presence there, how he's established. Uh, Craig, don't alarm the man into flight. I'll pose as a door-to-door -door salesman. Max, don't worry. Uh, telephone me from Sackett Bay. Will do. So long. At Sackett Bay, Long Island, the guy with blue freckles in the general store told me where to find Anatole Belmont. On an island a half mile off the mainland. Anatole B was known around Sackett Bay as the recluse type. The gent with a black patch over his eye ferried me to Belmar's Island. He drove the leaky motorboat like a suicide. As many knots an hour as he had kinks in his brain. Hey, Buster, slow down. Hey, Buster, I'm two premiums behind in my insurance. No answer. Either a deaf mute or not the talking type. I found a suitable prayer and began to mumble it. Belmar's Island had overstuffed seagulls on it the size of vultures. It also had a shack. A shack put together with paper, paste, and wire. I knocked politely. Oh, uh, Anatole Belmar. No answer. I did the impolite thing. I just walked in. Inside, I again did the polite thing. I removed my hat. You generally do if you've got visiting manners. You even make a special point of remembering to remove your hat in the presence of the dead. How dead was Anatole Belmar? Dead beyond recall. 
He was hanging by his neck from a beam eight feet off the floor. I changed my first diagnosis of suicide when I saw the lump on his head. He'd been slugged and strung up by somebody hoping to pass it off as suicide. I had news for the local police, and after that, I had mournful news for Max. Back in Manhattan, USA, I gave Max the mournful news. Funny thing, though, Max wasn't too surprised. All day today, I anticipated just what you've now told me, Craig. You guessed I'd find Anatole Barber Belmar dead? I guessed, yes. Where do you hide your Ouija board? Uh, I'll explain, but first tell me if you smell something. Smell? Yeah, smoke. I smell smoke. Come, I'll show you why. In my file room. Look, Craig. You've had a fire in here, huh? When, Max? This morning. How come the fire was localized to the one room? Uh, chemical extinguishers. The building porter discovered the fire. He broke down the door and managed to put the fire out. An incendiary fire, obviously. Plain as my nose. And said nose is as plain as an aviation landing strip. I see papers were pulled out of your cabinets, piled on the floor, then a match lit to the pile. When I found the fire, I knew at once you'd find Anatole Barber dead. What's your theory there? The client who engaged me to find Anatole Barber. I had his signature on a retainer, a form I regularly use in my agency every time I take on a case. So? I've carefully reconstructed the pattern of the fire. What files were burned, I asked myself. Who'd have some interest in destroying a section of my files? And you finally fixed on this one client? The only active account I've had in six weeks. His file was among those destroyed. Well, it's a bit arbitrary as a conclusion, Max. They're not so arbitrary when you're related to the murder of Anatole Barber. It's a fact, Craig. The purpose in engaging me was to find Anatole Barber Belmar so he could be murdered. And this trick with my files was to erase every clue there could be to the murderer. The murderer being the man who engaged you in the first place? Yes. What was the signature on that retainer form? Alan Merritt. A traceable signature, no doubt. Since for a cop to find in some public record. That's why he had to recover it and destroy it. Yes. And the fire was set to confuse matters as a cover-up. Alias Alan Merritt. What does he look like, Max? Oh, like anybody. Nothing distinctive to his appearance. He's average in height, build, complexion, dress, speech. Oh, great. What reason did he give you for wanting you to round up Anatole Barber? The barber owed him $10,000 from an old business investment. He wanted to locate Barber so he could file civil suit. A fish story. A lie, yes. Surely a lie. Uh, Max. Yes, Craig. The sad truth is, in finding Anatole Barber, you gave an unwitting assist to a murder. Also, to uh, give credit where credit is due, so alas did I. We were fingermen. One other thing, Max. What? This alias Alan Merritt. Even with the traceable signature on that retainer form no longer worrying him, he's still got a loose thread dangling. A thread that can become a hangman's noose. What thread? You two ever come face to face? You can identify him. I can, yes. Are you reading my mind, Max? Yes. This alias Alan Merritt, to really be safe, he... He must also kill me. That chance meeting face to face, somewhere, sometime, fate's little irony. Your client must right now be fretting over it. He'll try to kill you, Max, and that puts us right back in business. Or well, puts me in a grave. To get at you, he's got to show himself. He shows himself and I nab him. 
Craig. What, Mac? After you make the arrest, please see that Max Marcy gets a decent burial. <laughs> a hearse drawn by 16 prancing chorus girls, Max. I make you that promise. The West Coast broadcasts were supported by people like Joan Banks, Olin Soule, Parley Bear, Howard McNear, Herb Vigran, Virginia Gregg, Betty Lou Gerson, and Lawrence Dobkin. Uh, Hollywood radio, radio on the West Coast, was very closely knit. I remember working regularly in, on East Coast radio, and I told a group of people I was coming to the West Coast for a lot of reasons. Three or four of my good friends in New York radio said, you're going to be very hard-pressed to earn a living. They will not let you in. You're going to have a rough time. You don't know what a closed shop that is. It starts with the directors, the actors, but basically the directors and the writers have a very rigid attitude toward incoming talent, much more than New York. And I was getting this from uh, Ted DeCorsia, Santos Ortega. You know, the guys I was working with, I found that to be quite true. I came out from New York with my own series on ABC. I was starring in a show, Ellery Queen. I was the 11th or 12th Ellery. And the show provided me with, you know, a foothold, and I felt quite comfortable because I thought, they cannot ignore me. I am here doing a show every week, and they must hear it, and they must allow me entry and give me auditions, etc. Not so. It was enormously difficult. And Lillian's experience with a Bill Spears saying, nope, is quite typical. I think it was Norman MacDonald not with Gunsmoke, but something else, who f was the first West Coast director to allow me in to his normal casting procedure. And then Dwight Hauser, rest in peace, at ABC. After that, it became a little easier. But when but Ellery Norman was not that end, entrenched. I mean, when we no, started, he was, he was sort of a beginner himself. That's right. And I think that helped. He was more flexible. In due time, the attempted murder of Max Marcy, Private Eye, came to pass. On a quiet street in the noonday sun, Max leaning conspicuously against a store window reading a newspaper, and yours truly deployed across the street, waiting and watching. The attempt came like a clap of thunder from the sky. Max was just a wee bit hysterical. Craig, look how close the bullet came. Yeah. See the crown of my hat. A hair singe is beneficial, Max. Helps prevent premature baldness. Craig, don't joke. If I didn't joke, I'd cry. He escaped you? Totally. He was staked out somewhere on one of the roofs. On that, frankly, I never figured. Uh, now what? Well, we line up a second try at you. I'll have the roofs covered this time. All the men Lieutenant Trav Rogers over at police headquarters can spare. Sorry to do this to you, Max. The unfortunate thing about murder is you can't always predict where and when it will take place. We had cops staked out on roofs, Max sunning himself on the open street every day for a week. But when the second attempt on Max finally came, it came out of left field. It was in Max's office. In the afternoon heat, summer heat, that dehydrated you every 10 minutes. I watched Max idle over to his filtered water cooler. I watched Max pour himself a drink. Ten seconds later, I watched Max turn colors. Craig. Max, what's wrong? Craig, I'm poisoned. Max. Poison. 
poison in the water cooler, but not enough to kill, luckily. In the hospital six hours later, Max managed a whispered conversation. Craig. Yes, Max. One, two attempts. Number three. Ah, superstition. Fatalistic talk. Think of it this way. Two strikes so far. Strike three, the killer's out. How, how long will I be laid up? Overnight. You got a mild dose. Only enough to give you stomach cramps. Oh, it, it's hopeless, Greg. Alias Alan Merritt would even more in the dark. Better to give up. He's shrewd and slippery, our alias Alan Merritt. But I'll find an avenue to him. From here on, I'm going all out, Max. For utter lack of a lead, I did next best to the aimless thing. I stopped in to admire oriental carpets in the shop of my original contact, Amar Serebi. Yes, I have heard this sorrowful news. Police check disclosed uh, no next of kin, no relatives. Anatole Barber was alone in the world. How about best friends? Anatole Barber turned friendships away. He was suspicious and secretive. How about lady friends? Ladies? No, I do not think. Oh, come on. Even a suspicious and secretive recluse has some male ego. Some passing interest in the opposite sex. There was a woman. Oh, but such a long time ago. What was her name? Madame Nila Gallard. Know where I can find her? Nobody has seen Nila Gallard for mm, eight, ten years. How close was she to Anatole Baba? All I know to say, she worked in his store, the Mecca Bazaar. They would work together, take their meals together. Sounds chummy enough. Say, uh, Serebi. Yes? Anatole Barber's burial. The police have it scheduled for the day after tomorrow. A potter's field burial under the auspices of the city. Oh, this is regrettable. I shall see that the association extends the honors due him. That is to say, uh, pays the bills for the funeral. Oh, that's fine, but... Uh, Keep that quiet. What I want you to do is spread the word around that a kinsman's being given an obscure pauper's burial. Create sentiment and sympathy. Make old friends and business associates want to pay their last respects. Uh, give Anatole Barber a decent send-off. You think Neela Gallard will hear this and come to the funeral? Huh? I hope Neela Gallard will put in an appearance. Funerals are sad, but to me, this one was a joy. I was all smiles when Amar Serebi whispered the magic words into my ear. That woman standing there, wearing the black veil, she is Madame Nila Gallant. Some hours later, I took tea with Madame Gallant. Her home was a frame dwelling in suburban New Jersey. A middle-aged woman, once beautiful, you could tell, but heavy lines in her face now, like she'd known troubled times. I knew it was a mistake to come to Anatole's burial. Now, look, you're a dignified woman, so let's do this with dignity. Don't make me talk like a bad-mannered cop. I have a sealed envelope given to me by Anatole Baba. I have kept it unopened for 15 years. He wanted it kept unopened? Yes, he was afraid. Afraid of what in the end was his fate. Murder? Murder. Here's the letter. On the, uh, on the envelope, you will see Anatole's own handwriting. To be opened only in case of my death. 
You're in the total dark making blind circles, and then a bar of clear daylight knifes through the blackout. Suddenly, you're in the know. I let Max Marcy in on the contents of the letter left with Madame Gallant. Oh, you're a bloodhound, Craig. I keep moving and hoping you've sooner or later got the spark. Anatole Barber spells out his secret in this letter. Blackmail. Fifteen years of it. Anatole Barber had been blackmailing an important social figure named Wynne Blake. Wynne Blake? Well, that's very hard to believe. My man is one of 50 best-known people in the world. In the letter, Anatole sounds a fatalistic note. Right in your style, Max. He expected to sooner or later be murdered. The blackmailer's chronic anxiety. They figure the worm has to turn. The sucker must finally strike back. Craig. Yes, Max. What... What's your attitude at this point? Meaning? Oh, don't misunderstand me, Craig, please, but... But? You can speak out openly, Max. Well, do I motivate decisions from now on, or do you? Meaning it was your case originally? There are these new ramifications. A lot of it, none of our business is private operatives. Then a man like this Wynne Blake, a figure his size. We, we bungle handling it somewhere, it could blow up in our faces. Come down to what's bothering you, Max. All right. Frankly, is it any of our business now? It's my business, Max. You can scare off and quit. Figure the angles and decide there's no dough anywhere in it. Only headaches and risks. But don't please decide for me. Murder and blackmail is a public business. And while I'm a private investigator, I'm also a public citizen. (laughs) You're pretty good at speeches, too. All right, forget I said anything. Do what you have to do. Neither Afra nor Aftra, and finally not SAG either, chose at any time to operate like a hiring hall. That was a deliberate decision. The issue has been raised, the question has been raised within every guild I've ever belonged to, and that includes the Writers Guild, the Directors Guild, and the IA, because I I used to carry a stagehands card when I was younger. Only the IA operates like a hiring hall, and the others do not call themselves unions. They are guilds or associations, and if the cast is relatively closed on some show or other, that's a production decision. I think probably the best thing about the radio days was that as an actor, you could stay fluent. You were in and out, the job was done. The ease and speed of radio, the absence of commitment, the absence of time spent. You could have all the thrill and all the challenge of a full performance with four rehearsals and the air show. Mm -hmm. And you didn't spend eight hours driving to and from location and getting in and out of wardrobe and waiting for the young actors to learn how to do their parts. What I had to do was go see Wynn Blake. I did. The Blake house was not only upper class, it was the top story of the upper class. And the guy who wielded the scepter in the palace looked every inch his role in life. Gray, distinguished, with a stiff, aristocratic spine. A polished surface veneer with only one thing marring it. His eyes. I'd never seen sadder eyes. I wondered when it would be that a man just like yourself, a detective, would come to Blake Manor. You've been wondering that nightmare for 15 years. Yes, for 15 years. The ordeal of it, sir, the eternal apprehension. 
The ghost in your closet clanking his chains. And these days since uh, the death of Anatole Barber, I've barely weathered them. Remorse? I'm not surprised at the innuendo. I rather expected it. Who else would care to murder Anatole Barber? I have no answer to that. Barber, a leech who's been blackmailing you for 15 years. But I paid his every demand all these years. Why then now would I want to do violence to the man? I've got a simple answer to that. You just couldn't find Barber to kill him. I did not murder or cause the murder of Anatole Barber. What was he blackmailing you for? What did he have on you? Without legal counsel, I'm not sure I... All right, I'll tell you. I was involved in an accident in the summer of 1939. Automobile accident? Yes. A late hour in the driving rain, very little visibility. It was on a downtown street. I struck and killed an elderly pedestrian. Hit and run, huh? I'm ready now to face the charges, but I was coward enough and fool enough to drive away. I let my panic override my better judgment, my more decent instincts. You see, you had a lot to lose, you figured. You didn't want a vehicular homicide against you. I, I just drove away. But not unnoticed and undetected, as you believe then. Somebody saw the accident, jotted down your license plate number. Anatole Barber. Mm-hmm. He operated a store where the accident occurred, a rug shop, the Mecca Bazaar. He saw everything through his store window. And he's bled you ever since. He promptly closed up shop and made you his chief business from then on, huh? He exhorted a fortune for me in these 15 years. When did he tap you last? Two weeks before he died. How much did you give him? The usual periodic $10,000 in cash. I left the money in a designated place, as I always did. Barber never showed himself personally. He wasn't taking any chances. Did you hire a private detective to locate Anatole Barber's whereabouts for you? I did not. No, huh? Anybody else in your family aware of your uh, predicament with Anatole Barber? My wife knew, and so does my son. Your wife knew, you say? My wife is dead. Oh. And your son, where is he? He lives away at his school. What's the school? Eagle University, a medical college. Stuart's in the senior class. But my son couldn't possibly have anything How to do... How can you be sure? I... I suppose I cannot be sure. Son trying to get his pop out of a situation. A son nervy enough to commit the murder his father shrinks from doing. Wynn Blake or the son Stuart Blake. I ask you, uh, who else would want to murder Anatole Barber? And so Barry Craig went to college. The college dormitory room is only a box built around silver loving cups. Souvenir banners and pinups of Jane Russell. Barber was vermin. Murder was too merciful for him. Ask me, he deserved 15 years of some insidious oriental torture. Did you kill him? Did I what? Murder Anatole Barber. Yeah. Yeah, sure I did. He had it coming, and I gave it to him. Nice try, Sonny. Try? Try at taking the heat off your father. <laughs> My father? <laughs> Look, Dad hasn't got the moxie for the job done on Anatole Barber. But you have, huh? I say I killed him, so let's not beat that question around anymore. Okay, we'll bypass that question for the time being. Now answer me this, and truthfully. Did you hire a private detective to track down Barber? I hired Max Marcier. Do you doubt that, too? Well, proof could help. Proof, huh? Sure. Sure, wait a second. Here. Here's your proof. A receipt. 
That's right, for $300, a retainer initialed M.M. My down payment to Max Marcy for his services. There was a statue in bronze on the college campus steps, General Somebody or other. There was almost a second statue unveiled there about the time I was leaving. A statue of yours truly, stiff in the joints with an undertaker's glaze on top. A shot that froze me. Froze me, but didn't chill me. I was marked for murder. I had the case wrapped up, and the killer knew it. I brought Max Marcy up to date. Uh, the son is plainly lying to protect the father. That's my thought. Uh, arrest the father. Under arrest, he'll confess. To keep the boy honest, huh? To let the son take his, the father's blame, that's the ultimate cowardice. It's unthinkable. No decent father would. You're right there, no doubt. I, uh, swiped a photograph of the son off his bureau top. This, Max. Hmm. Handsome kid, huh? Yes, strapping. Nothing average about his looks, huh, Max? Way above average in height, size. Very distinguished-looking, generally. Crew cut. A break in the beak of his nose. An unusual-looking boy, yes. That admission, Max, kind of gives you the lie. The lie? Oh, you mean my description of alias Alan Merritt, do yeah. you? Yeah. Your nothing description of a man you invented. The big lie you told me. I've just remarked on the uh, glaring flaw in your almost perfect scheme, Max. Scheme? Crime. You're accusing me? Of beating my time to Sackett Bay. Of murdering Anatole Barber before I got there. I found Barber for you. You did the rest. But, Craig, consider all the facts. Facts, huh? Facts like the phony fire you set yourself? Or the hood you hired to climb a roof and shoot at you? Or the modest dose of insect poison you deliberately poured yourself from the water cooler? All to blind me to your guilt? Or maybe the fact that you tried to kill me today on the campus steps of Eagle University. <laughs> you are full of ideas, my good friend. Yeah, I am. How much dough have you got sold away now, Max? I'm penniless. Was. Until you found that gold mine of cash in Barber's shack. The fortune you knew he'd accumulated by blackmailing Wynn Blake for 15 years. You really tried providing for your old age, colleague. Words, accusations, talk, you'll need proof. I know. A tough old bird like you, it will need an army of cops to find that fortune you swiped and stashed away. Sure, proof's going to be tough. But let's start it going officially, huh? You're arresting me? Arresting and charging you. From there on, it's up to the regular police. I've personally gone as far as I care to go. <laughs> You're sentimental about me. No, Max, not a bit sentimental. Just fed up and bored. Your kind of creep I'd rather read about you in the papers. Why knock myself out? Walk ahead of me, Max. You have been listening to William Gargan in another exciting transcribed mystery drama from the adventures of Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Tonight's story, Blood Money, was written by John Robert. Next week, our story is titled, Hay is for Homicide, about which Barry Craig has this to say. Next week's story is titled, Hay is for Homicide, and the reason for this has something to do with a hayride and a farmer's daughter. With that combination, how could it help being uh, murder? Good night, folks. See you next week.
National Broadcasting Company has just brought you an NBC Radio Network production with William Gargan, starring as Barry Craig, confidential investigator, and directed by Arthur Jacobson. Also heard were Jim Nusser, Marvin Miller, Betty Lou Gerson, Jack Moyles, and Paul Richards. John Lang speaking. There's another exciting Dragnet adventure tonight on most NBC radio stations. From Washington, CBS Radio brings you an address by President Dwight D. Eisenhower. He delivered the address earlier today before the 36th National Convention of the American Legion meeting in the National Guard Armory in Washington, D.C. It comes to you now transcribed. Ladies and gentlemen, the President of the United States. Commander Connell, my fellow veterans and friends, for the third time since World War II, I am honored to join a national convention of the American Legion. With you, I give thanks that at last, we can come together at a time when the sounds of the battlefield everywhere in the world have been still. In such a gathering, made up of those who have served their country in time of war, it seems fitting that we turn our attention to our international affairs and our nation's security. Now in saying this, I do not mean that any group or any section of America has a monopoly either of interest or of wisdom in dealing with complex world problems. The contrary is true. The term bipartisan participation is too narrow to describe accurately the attitude that all Americans should maintain in this great area of vital concern. Rather, we should speak of universal or national participation, which would in turn imply serious study, analysis, and debate of every proposal and issue presented. Now, the world must understand that there is stability in our international purposes. Obviously, this cannot be obtained if there is to be marked change or if the world is to fear a marked change with every veering of partisan political winds. The only answer is that the whole American people must be informed and their decisions be made clear. Of course, it is obvious that much of the diplomatic work, particularly of those efforts that are classed as preparatory toward the reaching of agreements be conducted in confidence. The political situations in the several free countries are not identical, and premature disclosures of positions and arguments could very well bar the attainment of any reasonable solution. But on broad objectives and purposes, and on the acceptable methods for obtaining them, the American people must be fully informed. Thus, their decisions will be appropriate to the situation 
and the world will know that they are stable in terms of time. On Tuesday, August 31st, 1954, as President Eisenhower addressed the American Legion, it had been a busy 10 days for American aviation. On Sunday, August 22nd, Braniff Airwaves' Douglas C-47 DL Skytrain crashed during a flight from Waterloo to Mason City, Iowa. Twelve of the 19 on board died. The next day, a U.S. Air Force Lockheed C-130 Hercules flew its first flight at Burbank, California. And on August 25th, U.S. Air Force Captain Joseph C. McDonnell, the top-scoring American jet ace in history, died in a crash when his F-86H Sabre fighter bomber malfunctioned during a test flight at Edwards Air Force Base, California. Meanwhile, Barry Craig, confidential investigator, took to the air with a play called Hay is for Homicide. William Gargan stars as Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Someone once said that murder is a fine art. There's a catch, though. If you're a successful artist, they hang your paintings. If you're a successful murderer, they hang you. The National Broadcasting Company presents William Gargan in another transcribed drama of mystery and adventure with America's number one detective, Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Barry Craig speaking. Even confidential investigators need a vacation. Sometimes they've been known to take one. The place I'd chosen was Vermont. The main reason for that was Jake. He was on vacation too. He decided to come home and see if he'd been smart in abandoning Vermont to run an elevator on Madison Avenue. Say, Jake. Uh, yeah? What's the verdict? Madison Avenue. Why? Is Madison Avenue dark and quiet like this? Nope. Is Madison Avenue surrounded by tall trees, cooled by gentle breezes, filled with the fragrance of unspoiled nature? Nope. Now, what's Madison Avenue got that this place hasn't? Girls. Well, you may be right, but... Or you may be wrong. That came from directly up the road. Nice night for a hayride. Is it? Yep. Could have been a giggle. Mm, a rather loud giggle. Girls got very loud giggles sometimes, especially but... on a hayride. Oh, Jake, stop pulling my leg. Hey, wait a minute. What's that in the road up ahead of us? Hay wagon. I refuse to believe it, but it is filled with hay. Usually are. There's a horse out in front of it, but where's the driver? Say, Jake, would, would he have gone off and left the wagon out in the middle of the road? Ain't too likely. Oh. I'm coming up on that wagon. That girl, if it was a girl, didn't giggle. She screamed. I'd better take a look around in the hay. What for? Anything larger than a needle. Yeah, there's plenty of hay up here. Anything else? No, I... Mr. Craig? I was rushing things. There is something else up here. What? A man. A very pale man. What's he doing up there? Nothing. Just being dead. He 
lay very still. His eyes stared up at the summer sky overhead, but saw neither the stars nor the moon. The moon that shone on him and on the metal handle of the knife that was buried in his heart. He was wearing overalls and a work shirt. His short hair outlined clearly the skull beneath. There was nothing I nor anyone could do for him. Murdered? Yes. Anything on him? No that... identification at all, Jake. We need a phone. Mm, past farmhouse, half mile back. Now, let's go. Think it's all right leaving him there? He won't mind. The Vermont night was as quiet and peaceful as it had been before I heard the scream and a man died of a knife wound lying on a mound of hay. Nature doesn't concern herself too much about us and our doings, which is very bright of nature. Got to turn off the road to get to that farmhouse. Yeah. Well, somebody ought to oil that gate. Yeah. Whole house is pretty run down. Jake, get down. It ain't necessary. Those shots. Over our heads. Her aim might improve. Her aim? Well, you can see her. Farmhouse window. This time it's not the farmer with the shotgun. It's the farmer's daughter. Spoil a lot of stories that way. She's left the window. Yeah. She knows she didn't hit either of us. Those shots were either a warning or possibly a yell for help. How are you going to decide? Well, if it was a warning, I don't think she'd have left the window. So it must be a call for help. Come on. That was real logical, Mr. Craig. Thanks. Let's hope it turns out to be true. There were no more shots, which did or didn't prove I'd been right because the shooting would be better once we were inside the house. First time I ever heard of targets knocking on the door. The lady may have had all the target shooting she wants. Who's there? Barry Craig and Jake. Hello? Barry Craig? Yeah. And Jake? Me... Neither of you look very terrifying. Is that bad? No, it's nice. Please come in. Thanks. Please, make yourselves comfortable. Nice room. Rustic, perhaps, but I like it. Do you like being a farmer? Or, or maybe I should say... A farmer's um... daughter? <laughs> very much. Almost as much as you like firing guns at strangers? Oh, but I didn't know whether you were strangers or... Or what? Or dead men. Maybe she was what she claimed to be, a farmer's daughter. But if she was, somebody's been telling me lies about farms. Her hairdo was sleek, as though it had been just applied. Her fingernails had had a lot of professional attention. Her dress was so simple, it practically yelled Paris at you. And she didn't need any of these beauty aids. She would have been beautiful without them, but not nearly so expensive. You did say dead men. Yes. You often run across dead men walking around? Yes. Uh-huh. You think I'm crazy, don't you? I don't think you're crazy at all. You've just got uh, a peculiar vision. 
I'm not sure I ought to be grateful for that. Well, forget I said it. My name is Millie George. How do you do? This is, or was, my father's farm. He was very happy here until the dead men started walking. And then? He became one of them himself. Your father's dead? Over a year now. You live here alone? Oh, I don't really live here at all. I have an apartment and a job in town. But I come here often. As often as I dare. My fingers idly traced a pattern in the inch-deep dust on the table next to my chair. Inch-deep dust. Millie George was very lovely. She told her ghost story neatly, but she was also a complete liar. I think maybe we'd better skip the walking dead for a minute. There's something more urgent that's got to be done. Where's your phone? I'm afraid there isn't one. Father never cared for what he called mechanical murderers. Murderers? He meant things that killed time, interrupted work. I see. Destroyed quiet. I see. That's too bad. Why do you need a phone? Jake and I ran across a hay wagon some distance down the road. Oh? There was a man in it. He wasn't walking around like the people you've been telling us about. He was lying down, but he was dead anyway. If I'd been looking for a reaction to my words, I would have been disappointed. Lily George took the news with not a flicker of anything except polite interest. But I wasn't disappointed. I'd expected that reaction. The police like to be told about stray corpses. I suppose so. I think the gardeners have a phone. Where would I find them? Well, their house is about a quarter of a mile further down the road. Oh, good. Jake. Ready. Oh, by the way, this man, what did he die of? A knife in his heart. Oh. Suicide? The angle of the knife's entrance wouldn't be right for suicide. Oh, then it was... Murder. How dreadful. Yes, terribly dreadful. So long. Harley Bear played Jake. In the old days of radio, I could almost tell the kind of part it was going to be by the director who hired me. Some saw me as a rural hay raker, and somebody else saw me as a booming second-rate politician. It's good that people don't all think alike. Are <laughs> you playing the like the Indian said, everybody would want his squaw. <laughs> you were part of a select group of actors, I think, who appeared in virtually all of the CBS programs in the 1950s. CBS was the last, the network that hung on the longest Just with radio. dramatic shows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the workshop and escape and so many uh, things like yes. that. And then do you Suspense. remember Armour Star Theater on Saturday mornings? Mm -hmm. you, I'm sure, like so many of the other actors out here, we're doubling on some of the shows, and oh, yes. we're doing more than one show in, in a day. Yes, I hate to say you hadn't really arrived until you had a conflict. <laughs> <laughs> I think that radio is the ideal medium for a performer, because if 12 million people were listening, you were giving 12 million performances. Mm -hmm. It's too bad that it had to go, but it was a lot of fun while it lasted. So far as Millie George was concerned, murder belonged in pretty much the same category as a run in a pair of new nylons. You said how dreadful and bought another pair. You couldn't do exactly the same thing with a damaged life, though. Mr. Craig. Yeah? 
Millie George said the gardener's house, the one with the phone, was down the road that way. That's what she said, Jake. Then why are we going this way? I want to take another look at that hay wagon. Once wasn't enough? I think maybe there's been a change. Less hay? Less corpse. It was a nice road to be taking a stroll on in the cool evening. It would have been an even nicer road if there hadn't been a hay wagon in the middle of it. Still there. Yeah. The horse must be getting lonely. Being a farmer, you get a wrong angle on horse. You don't think being a horse's chum is romantic. I'll never say hello to a horse again. Excuse me. You're getting pretty spry at climbing hay wagons, Mr. Craig. Just practice, that's all. Mr. Craig? Hmm? Counting the hay up there? No, just confirming a guess. Less corpse? No corpse. I'd thought back at Millie George's house that the shots might have been a warning or maybe a call for help. I knew now they'd been neither. What they actually had been were distractions. Mr. Craig, maybe... Maybe he wasn't really dead. Jake, they don't get any deader. Think likely you'd be fooled. Somebody moved him out of there. Yeah. Well, what for? Can't be many folks enjoy dragging corpses around. Whoever dragged this one maybe didn't enjoy it at all. Well, what was he trying to do? Save undertaker's expenses? Maybe he was trying to save his neck. I got down out of the hay wagon and said goodbye to it. We wouldn't be coming back that way. Mr. Craig. What is it, Jake? Funny thing about city people. They like to walk. Oh? They do it deliberate, even when they don't have to. Well, uh... Country people hate to walk. But, Jake, uh, we've got to get back to that farmhouse. With the girl in it? Yeah, Millie George. We're hoping that this time maybe she won't shoot over our heads. We're hoping that this time she won't shoot at us at all. And for this, we're wearing our feet down clear at the ankle. Oh, it's not as bad as that. It's worse. I got short ankles. Oh. <laughs> Mr. Craig, I can tell you right now, she don't have a phone. I know, but by this time, she may have something else. Do I want to know what it might be? Not in your condition, you don't. Thanks. We didn't have much farther to go, which was just as well. Jake had started groaning at every step. Next to Jake's snores, Jake's groans are the surest recipe for punctured eardrums. Oh, you can stop groaning, Jake. We're at the house. If I got strength enough to lift my head, I uh, at the house. Think you can make it inside? Oh, dear. I can try. Fine. Jake. I, uh... It doesn't look as if anyone's going to invite us in. Well, this don't make me feel bad. We'll go in without an invitation. Now I don't know how I feel... Find out later. Well, somebody left the lights on. Wasn't a Vermont man. Quiet. 
Yeah, let's try the parlor. Oh, anything for an excuse to keep a walk in. I suppose this is the parlor. Nobody in here. It's the parlor. Hmm. I don't like this much. But the only thing left for us to do now is uh, sit out. Excuse me while I cheer. I... Well, what are you waiting for? Go ahead, Grandpa. Cheer. Company. So I notice. Kind of thing you're liable to run into in old houses. They come out of the woodwork, I think. Uh, uh, don't try to insult me, mister. Why not? Anything you're liable to say is liable to be true. Don't be foolish. I don't use that kind of language. You also ain't using the kind of language I would like to hear. What language would that be? The one telling me where the baby is buried? A boy or a girl, baby? Jake. Oh, that grandpa's a joker. Grandpa could easy get his head knocked off. Put the gun down, son, and Grandpa will be glad to tangle with you. I ain't putting no guns down. And when I say baby, you know what I mean. You mean uh, something worth money? Oh, you are a bright one. Okay, so where is it? Even if I knew where it was, I wouldn't tell you. Why not? You've got the wrong R.H. factor. Wrong? Uh, well, uh, supposing I could get a hold of the right one. It wouldn't buy you the time of the day from me. Uh, language like that's got guys killed before this, mister. So have guns like that. Well, this is kind of fancy, but it ain't very productive. What makes you think I know anything about the, the, uh, the baby? You're in this dump, ain't you? I'm in it. So what are you doing here? Looking for a beer? It so happens I'm looking for a corpse. Well, you're going to find one. Your own. Only ain't going to be no condition to appreciate it. Funny thing... You didn't show any interest in the corpse I'm looking for. Whose it might be, say? Hey, Mr. Corpses is dead. They don't bother me. It's the live operators you got to keep in mind. Like you and Grandpa. How about the girl? You just leave her out of this. She's for me. Oh? And why do you think I was called in? Hey, hey, hey wait, mister. You trying to tell me you was called in by... By the girl, yes. That don't smell so good. Neither do you. Let's call it a draw and go home. You were saying the girl brought you in, huh? Okay. We find out fast. Hey, sugar! Come here, sugar. This joker informs me you brought him in on a deal. That so? No. Also heard in the cast was Jack Moyles, Vivi Janice, and Joyce McCluskey. Arthur Jacobson directed the production. Airing opposite Barry Craig at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time was High Adventure over WOR Mutual, Stop the Music over CBS, and Watkins Committee Testimonies Concerning Senator Joseph McCarthy on ABC. Senator McCarthy and the Red Scare has been covered extensively on episodes 123 through 128 of Breaking Walls on the first six months of 1954. McCarthy would be censured by the Senate in December, some of us see each other frequently, not as frequently as we would like, but it's such a wondrous thing to meet here at a joyous occasion when it's not a funeral. <laughs> <laughs> would you please uh, stay seated and sign some autographs? I had a long look at the girl who'd come into the room. It was fun while it lasted. She was worth looking at. She was beautiful, non-rural, undoubtedly expensive, and she was not Millie George. Well? Call it mistaken identity. Oh. <laughs> oh, cut it out, Dina. 
I don't know what you think he said, but it wasn't very funny. It wasn't? It wasn't. Oh. This girl probably is on your side. She's not the one I was talking about. You, you mean there's been another babe around? Oh, honey, he must mean Joey's wife. Uh, why don't you forget you ever learned to talk, Dina? That ain't a friendly attitude. I ain't feeling friendly. Joey makes it out of the pen, ducks for cover here, and a counter here is where he buried the baby. Banks wouldn't uh, like you calling their money baby. Well, I don't like banks. So it was bank money. Thanks for telling me. Who told you? Uh, never mind. To resume, Joey gets here, and the first thing anybody knows, he winds up with a knife and a ticker. This is bad. Ain't good. Shut up. You can't say that to a Vermont man. Why not? I don't rightly remember. Well, get in touch with me when you do. What sale? Now, will you lay off? You guys trying to confuse me or something? Uh, Joey winds up with a knife and a ticker and no dough. Look, ain't you forgetting Joey's wife? Hey, yeah. If she was around here, maybe she met him even before we got here, grabbed the dough off of him, and then handed him a knife, huh? Fine wife. Nah, she never liked him so much. After she found out he was a bank operator. She was prejudiced against banks? She was prejudiced in favor of banks. A narrow-minded woman. So, I'm thinking maybe she's the one we got to get our hands on. And when did you see her? A little while ago. Where? Here. Well, she ain't in the house. We went all through it. If she knifed Joey and scrambled a dough, we better get after her. Brady's a scream, ain't he? Yeah, <laughs> uh, don't disturb my mental processes, huh? Now, uh, there wasn't no car around before, which means she must have headed for the village and railroad station. Okay, now we know where we're going. Oh, I think we do. Uh, that reminds me. What about you guys? Well, we'll hang around and play some pinochle. I've been wanting a good pinochle game. Uh, Dina, what do you think? I think you're a big dope. Oh, what kind of remark is that? Oh, you believe too easy. Joey's wife would maybe stick up Joey, but she wouldn't take the bank's money. Yeah, it could be right. Yeah, but maybe... These characters, you ought to... Don't pay any attention to her, Brady. She's a bitter woman. You shut up. You know what I say? I say get rid of them, and then we'll have lots of time to find the money. Hey, you could be right. She could also be wrong. All right, so she's wrong. What do I lose if she's wrong? Mr. Craig's life and mine. In my line of business, I can't afford to be sentimental. If you die for nothing... I shall be sorry, but not very sorry and not for very long. Okay, here. Please, Brady. Huh? Not while a lady's in the room. Oh. <laughs> excuse me, Dina. Sometimes I think you ain't got no manners. I said excuse me. There's a nice, refined girl. You know, never even packs a rod. Well, Brady... Yeah? You're an idiot. Well, that could be. You think Dina's really going to wait for you? In that car outside? Well, sure. Me and her is personally very friendly. That was before the bank money came up. Why shouldn't she wait for me? And share your execution? Who's getting executed? I knock you guys off. We find a dough, we get out of here. Nobody knows who's even around. Dina gets out of here, you mean? You don't. The cops will pick you up in a few hours. Hey, you keep saying she won't wait for That's me. That's what I keep saying, because it's the truth. Would you like to test her before sticking your neck away out? What kind of test? Fire two shots into the floor. What for? I got nothing against the floor. Oh, forgive me. You haven't got brains enough to be an idiot. Fire these shots, and it'll sound to Dina as though you shot Jake and me. 
Then if she waits for you, fine. You can go ahead with your original plan. But if she doesn't wait, if she scrams as soon as she hears those shots... Hey, it's an idea. You know, it's even a good idea. Okay, boys, just don't get alarmed. Hey, you shouldn't have insulted Dina. She's okay. So just for insulting her, I'll kill you anyway. Shut up. Listening, Brady? Hey, Dina! Hey, Dina! Uh, a man betrayed. Craig. Craig, you was right. I feel terrible. You should. But I don't understand Dina crossing me like that. What'd she get out of it? How much money was in the bank job? Hey, uh, around 30 grand. She gets 30 grand out of it. Huh? But she... Were uh... you and she together all evening? Well, no, but... You came down to this house? Why? Well, we figured this is where Joey's gonna head. Once we hear he has departed from the pen. But Joey don't show. Then you tell me Joey is now a corpse. Pretty plain what happened. One way or another, Joey latched onto a pair of overalls and a work shirt, plus one wagon filled with hay. He dug up the money from wherever he'd hidden it and headed for this house. But before he got here... He runs into trouble. He ran into Dina. Now it begins to clear up. And Dina takes him for the dough, huh? She takes him. Uh, I could have figured it out for myself. Yeah, all you needed was Mr. Craig's brains. Better he should have them. What would I do with them? You've got a point. And so is your head. <laughs> Please, Grandpa. <laughs> Dina does not wish to share this here dough with me, so she tries to get me to knock you guys off, then get picked up by the cops while she's traveling very fast in my car. Hey, this is revolting. It is. You know, you do very good guessing. No guessing. No? How'd you know Joey was an escaped con? I mentioned the fact that he was pale and that his hair had been cut short. That was enough. Farmers don't work indoors in the summer. They couldn't be pale. And why did Joey dress up like a farmer? Because he wasn't one. Escaped convicts are pale, have short hair, and seek a disguise. Hey, you know something, Craig? You're so smart, I'm beginning to worry. What about what kind of securities us criminals going to have if private eyes like you go around being smart all the time? The same kind of security you've always had. No security. Well, just don't dwell on that there. I got something else to worry about. I got to figure out a way to get hold of Dina before she scrams out of the country with that dough. But Brady, huh? Dina doesn't have the money. Brady had a little trouble with this. Even Jake began to look worried. As far as I was concerned, I hoped. Because I could turn out to be wrong, and being wrong in a case of this kind was only one short step before being dead. But you figured it all out yourself. Logically. That Dina was the one who knocked off Joey and took the dough. What you're forgetting, Brady, is that there can be more than one logical explanation for anything. Eh, uh, huh? He means just because something's logical don't prove it's true. Oh. And then, of course, logic can be twisted. As twisted as your mind, Brady. Ah, uh, you leave my mind out of this. It's got its own troubles. Uh, please explain. Well, Joey was a desperate man running from the police. He was also a man owning $30,000. He was finally a man in a hurry. So? How would Dina have persuaded a man in those circumstances to let her get close enough to him to stab him? 
Well, uh, maybe... There's no way. Well, somebody got close enough to... Of course. Somebody who was armed with a weapon that was dangerous at a distance. A gun, say. Oh, so Dina... No, no. You yourself told us Dina never carried a gun. Joey's wife... Wouldn't have needed to take the chance of killing him on the road. She could have waited till she had him here. You know something? I said you were so bright I was beginning to get worried. I ain't beginning no more. I'm worried. So you admit you were the one who stabbed Joey and took the money? Yeah, sure. Dina scrammed just now because she was afraid you didn't intend to share the money with her. But instead would kill her the same way you'd kill Joey. Could be. She realized you'd hidden Joey's body to gain time for doing just that. Uh, it won't do her much good. I know where she goes when she's scared. But before that... You can't shoot us. Why? Well, I don't know, frankly, but give me a little time and I'll think of something. Uh, too bad, Grandpa. I ain't giving you no time at all. Oh. oh, for a fellow who's just been shot, I feel fine. You weren't shot, Jake. Come on in, Miss Millie. I spotted her behind those drapes a long time ago. I was looking for her. The trouble with you, Jake, is that you spent so much time thinking about the farmer, you forgot about the farmer's daughter. It didn't quite end there, though. The police removed the debris, put out a pickup for Dina, and then... Barry. Yeah? I really am a farmer's daughter. I know. So? Yeah? How about some country-cooked ham? Hmm. You have been listening to William Gargan in another exciting transcribed mystery drama from the adventures of Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Tonight's story, Hay is for Homicide, was written by Louis Vitties. Next week, it's the strange story of Ghosts Don't Die in Bed, about which Barry Craig has this to say. We call next week's story, Ghosts Don't Die in Bed, which is a true saying. It's also true, of course, that they don't die anywhere else, because they're already dead. All except for one I run into when... when? Good night, folks. See you next week. The National Broadcasting Company has just brought you transcribed an NBC Radio Network production with William Gargan, starring as Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Directed by Arthur Jacobson. Also heard, Parley Bear, Joyce McCluskey, Jack Moyles, and Vivi Janis. John Lang speaking. The aviation age of America is now in progress and calls to young Americans to keep in step by becoming members of the United States Air Force. If you are a high school or college graduate between the ages of 19 and 26 and a half, 
single, and in good physical condition, then you may be eligible to win your wings as an Air Force lieutenant. While in training, you'll learn to fly as pilots with the latest equipment and the best instructors. Investigate now. Visit your Air Force recruiting station for additional information. There's another exciting dragnet adventure tonight on most NBC radio stations. Mary, no! God, let Let go! I simply don't understand it. Of course, the sound is coming from the basement. It's all right, I've got you, Mr. Adam. No, no. Show me what? Gotta get away from those eyes! Get away! Get away! George, no! Are you attracted to the dark? Fascinated by the dramatic? With a side of gruesome and a dash of poetic justice? If your happy place is a gloomy room at midnight, then you should be listening to the podcast, Twelve Chimes It's Midnight. Please join us, won't you, for plays of mystery, horror, and suspense. Find us and subscribe wherever you procure your podcasts. And remember, at midnight, anything can happen. September of 1954, as the last new episode of The Lone Ranger was broadcast, Barry Craig, confidential investigator, took to the air on Tuesday, September 7th at 8.30 p.m. Eastern Time with an episode called Ghosts Don't Die in Bed. William Gargan stars as Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Murderers, by and large, probably lead very dull lives. But there's no doubt about the way most of them wind up. It's electrifying. The National Broadcasting Company presents William Gargan in another transcribed drama of mystery and adventure with America's number one detective, Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Barry Craig speaking. An office in a shabby old building on Madison Avenue isn't the ideal place to spend the summer. It isn't ideal for fall, winter, and spring either. But if you're a confidential investigator, you settle for considerably less than the ideal. When the phone rings, though, you hope. Nine times out of ten, it's only the phone company testing your reflexes. The tenth time... Craig? Barry Craig? Speaking. This is Mark Reed, Barry. Mark, I haven't heard from you Listen, I don't have much time. Can you get down here right away? Well, get down where? My house. The old tower house. It's right outside Dorning. That's upstate. Well, I've driven through Dorning. Don't drive. There's a train at midnight. Faster. Well, what's my hurry? Take that train. Tonight, please, Barry. But why? I can't say any more. So long. Mark. Mark. a few years. 
nothing special. We knocked over a few beers from time to time, discussed the state of the nation, admired sports cars. I'd never figured him for an especially imaginative type. On my way over to the station, I tried to tell myself it was just a fancy way of inviting me to spend a weekend in the country. But then, uh, why had there been terror in his voice? Ticket, please. Oh, here you are. Getting off at dawning, huh? That's right. Now, why do conductors always punch tickets and then keep them? Well, we don't, actually. Except when the passenger is getting off at the next scheduled stop. That's me. Uh, how long before we get to Dorney? An hour or so. Hmm. Train's kind of empty. Late run, don't get many people. Makes it nice and quiet and dull. Moon shining. Well, who does that help? Observation platform, back of the train. Well, that's nice. Gives you a better view of nothing. Well, I wouldn't say that. Oh? Blonde girl back there, too. Been there ever since we pulled out of the city. Our conductor. Oh, I ain't trying to promote romance. I'm a little worried about her. Why? The way she looked. Frightened, sort of. In fact, she stayed out there all alone for hours now. Oh, it doesn't have to mean anything. Well, that's why I didn't take any official notice. But I'm still worried. Hmm. Maybe I'll go back and see if the moon looks the same from the observation platform, huh? Well, I think that might be a good idea. Only uh, one thing I maybe ought to tell you. What's that? She was carrying her ticket in her handbag. When she opened it to get the ticket, I noticed she was carrying something else in that handbag. What? A gun. an observation platform sort of go together, especially when there's a moon around. Blonde and the gun or something else again. Something not nearly so nice. Oh, oh I'm sorry. Don't move. D- don't come any closer to me. Okay. You don't need a gun to keep me off. It's pointing right at you. I know how to use it. You might try using your brains instead. Don't try I'm not trying anything. All I am is a passenger on this train. Sure, you'd have to say that. I never saw you before. I'm sure you never saw me before. I never saw the man who tried to kill me before either. Tried to kill you where? Back in town. But you did see him. Well, not really. It was dark. He was in a car. He shot at me. Well, what did the police say about it? I didn't go to them. I had to make the train. Why am I telling you this? I inspire confidence in small children. I'm not a small child. You're acting like one. If you let me reach into my breast pocket, I'll show you my credentials. Credentials? Yeah, my name's Craig. I'm a confidential investigator. You, you get your credentials, but you be careful. Oh, I'll be very careful. Ah, nothing lethal about a card case, wallet. I'll dump them on the chair here, and then I'll move away. Now, you can look at them without disturbing your aim. All right. Barry Craig. Yeah. I'm sorry. Forget it. Now, put the gun away. Yes. Good. Now, what's your name? Ruth Adams. How do you do? And why would anyone be taking pot shots at you? I don't know. Any attempts on you before tonight? No. Well, what's special about tonight? This train trip? Mm, Maybe I've never gone up before. Gone up to where? Dawning.
girl was small but not skimmed. She was pleasant to look at, or would have been had she not been suffering from complete panic. The fact that she was getting off at dawning might have been a coincidence. I found out back in the club car. Another drink? No, no thanks. I, I feel a lot better already. Fine. Now, you're getting off at dawning. Yes. And then you're going on to the tower house. <gasps> oh. Well, don't freeze up. My knowledge isn't necessarily guilty knowledge. Well, why the old tower house? My uncle lives there. It's his house. Mark Reed? You know him? Well, he's the reason I'm on this train. He phoned me, wanted me to come out immediately. Well, I, I got a telegram from him. It was surprising because... I haven't seen him since I was a baby. He had a fight with my father. And uh, your mother was his sister? Yes. Is she alive? No, she died years ago. And your father? Uh, he's dead, too. Oh, don't think I'm just being nosy. I'm trying to find a pattern in... Uh, you know if your uncle has any other relatives besides yourself? Alive? No. Uh-huh. Well, have you found that pattern? The beginnings of one, maybe. The rest will have to wait until, well, until we get to the house, which won't be long now. We got off the train. It turned out we were the only people who got off the train. Maybe because dawning turned out to be nothing but a decaying wooden shack by the side of the tracks. This can't be dawning. Well, it is. Sign on that shack says so. But... Hiya, folks. Uh, oh. oh! Easy, Ruth. It's a cabbie. Yeah, buggy's all ready for you, folks. Take you right into dawning. I'd hoped we were in dawning. <laughs> no, no. This here's only the railroad station. Town's a couple of miles south. Uh-huh. Well, lead the way. I don't have to ask you folks which hotel you'd like to stop at. Reason is, there ain't but one in dawning. <laughs> uh, we're not going to a hotel. Oh, risen friends, huh? That's right. Mark Reed. Reed? Yes, uh, at the old tower house. You know where it is? Yeah, I know where it is. It ain't south like the town. It's north a bit. Not very far. Just walk up the road here about a mile and a half. Well, hold on. We're hiring you to take us there. No, you ain't. Why not? Well, the further I stay away from that place, the happier I am. Well, what's wrong with it? I don't know. I never investigated. Well, you could be wrong. Well, I don't want to find out, mister. Would you and the young lady like some good advice? Trains back to the city coming through in an hour. Stay here and get on it. Well, I'm not that crazy about trains. Well, you'll thank me for that advice someday. Well, I'll thank you right now. We're still going to the tower house tonight. If you're afraid to drive us there, take us into Dorning. We can get another cab there or maybe rent a car. Okay, mister. Get in. Ruth? Uh-huh. I'll take you to the tower house. Thank you. I didn't have to make no crack about my being afraid. But you are. Well, maybe I am. Maybe the reason you're so brave is because you don't know what you're getting into. Betty Lou Gerson played Ruth Adams. I have uh, what you call a theatrical trained voice, which sounds a little English, a little Southern, and Tallulah Bankhead came from Jasper, Alabama, and so she had Southern with a little of this. Anyway, I had a cold once on Lux, a very, very bad cold, and when I get a cold, my voice goes deeper and deeper and deeper, and this was the one that was starring Tallulah, and I had 
the first line, and she looked up at the director, Fred Mackay, and she said, darling, you have got to be kidding. (laughs) (laughs) At that point, I said, oh, this is the easiest money I ever had, and I left and was paid, you know. (laughs) I thought it very amusing. I've been mistaken for her and Catherine Hepburn and everybody. It was just later on when everything became so mechanical when they would tape everything. They taped the shows and they taped the music and they taped the sound effects and they just taped everything and they taped the heart right out of the business. Because actually, back in the old days, if you were really good, you used your script merely as reference. You didn't stay glued to a script. You were glued to the actor or actors you were working with. It was very, very much like the theater in that sense. I know I was always moving around. My hand was, you know, through my hair and all that sort of thing. You played the show. The lights were darkened, the lights were on you, and you did not play to the audience. You could not. You had to, in the first place, play to the mic to a certain extent so that your S's didn't hiss and you would do it at an angle. And you played to the actor, the scene with the actor. The audience was except for your stand-up comedies, and they played directly for their lives. I didn't know, but I didn't have to be brave about anything. I was going to visit an old friend in the country, that's all. Or was it? Barry, I don't like this. Well, I've been in better cabs. There's a feeling about this trip, in the middle of the night to an old house. I love lights and people, Barry. I'll take it easy. Once we get to the house, it ought to be comfortable enough. Mark's a wonderful host. And it looks like we're practically there. Well, high stone wall, gate. This is it, folks. Oh, that gate's open. Must lead to a private road. You can turn in and... Well, the house is about a half a mile from the highway here. Well? This is where you get out. You were hired to take us to the house. This is as far as I go. I could make you change your mind. Please, Barry, don't. Okay, let's go. Ah, how much? Two bucks. Uh Uh-huh, one, two, two dollars. You can keep the change. What change? The tip is for your courtesy and cooperation. Uh, Think you're smart. Get out of the cab and we'll discuss it. You, uh, you, you think you're smart. Somebody must love him, but it must be uphill work. Barry, I'm terrified. Oh, come on. There's nothing to be afraid of. No, nothing that we can see. It wasn't too pleasant a half mile. The girl was frightened. The wind was blowing up. There'd be rain soon. The darkness was complete and... I didn't have the beginning of an idea of what we might be walking into. I don't like that. The thunder? It was so loud. Who knows what it might wake up. No, 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 no. That was only a dog. That was the hound of the Baskervilles, and I want to go home. The house is right up ahead on that rise. Fifty yards more, and... That dog is getting closer. That's a pet. Who's? Dracula's? 
There he is. There he is. He's going to jump at us. Doesn't look vicious. He's as big as a horse. Oh, here, boy, here. He's encouraging him. No, no, no. Easy, boy, easy. Ah, oh, that's a fine animal. He's more afraid of us than we are of him. We got a better reason. Oh, he's quieting down. That's a good boy. Come on. We'll take him to the house with us. I hope they like dogs there. Uh, is that the house? It must be. Oh, I don't like it. It looks like a tomb, and Grant never was up here, so... Oh, it's just an old house. Architect had a lousy sense of humor. Barry, the dog. Growling now. What's the matter, boy? What's the matter? Well, he stopped dead. Barry, he's staring at that house as though... As though he didn't know it, that's all. Come on, he'll follow us. He's not following us. Well, he's running away, Barry, in panic. Well, he's a neurotic hound, that's all. Now, let's stop worrying about him. Your uncle asked us to come down. Hmm, the house maybe isn't pretty, but so far we haven't seen anything wrong. I'm sorry. Go ahead, Barry, knock. Well, there's a bell pull here. Oh. Not exactly a happy tinkle, but... Uh, I'm not sure for whom that bell's tolling, but I hope it's not for us. I hope somebody answers it soon. Somebody dressed in the latest in shrouds. I know I'm being silly, but if I weren't, I'd, I'd be screaming. Now, you stick to being silly while I stick to... And maybe everybody went to the movies, huh? <gasps> oh, what do you want? Hello, I... I hope we haven't waked you, you, but, uh, uh, well, I'm Barry Craig, and this is Miss Ruth Adams. About it. Mr. Reed asked us down. Who? Mr. Reed. Mark Reed. No, Mr. Reed here. You better go. Here, now, wait a minute. This is the old tower house, isn't it? It is. Then Mark Reed's here. You're insane. Now, that's my foot blocking your doorway. Now, Mark Reed's here. He owns the house. He phoned me earlier tonight, and he sent Miss Adams a telegram asking us both to come down here. He didn't phone. He didn't send a telegram. He doesn't live here. Well, maybe you don't know him. Uh, how long have you been... I've been a housekeeper here for 20 years. Never heard of any Mr. Reed. You know Mr. Reed here. Go away. You could be making an honest mistake. You better step away from the door, though. We're coming in. I wouldn't be so sure of that. <gasps> Oh, reinforcements? Got a gun, Barry? Mm, the complete householder. I have a gun, and I'm prepared to use it. Mrs. Dunn, what is all this? Some story about a Mr. Reed. Reed? I'll spell it for you. That won't be needed. Why are you trying to force your way into my house? We were invited here. By whom? Reed. Oh, maybe I'm getting monotonous, but it's still Reed. That doesn't explain your presence on my doorstep. This is his home. Fiddlesticks. I purchased this house 21 years ago. It is mine. My name is Loomis. Barry? I don't know. My head's starting to spin. Now, Mr. Loomis, has this house always been known as the old tower house? It is known by that name now. Always is a long time. It has been called the old tower house ever since I have lived here. Well, for a lead nickel, I'd buy the theory that Reed was a ghost. But ghosts don't make phone calls. They don't send telegrams. I'm not very well acquainted with the habits of ghosts. I suggest you carry on your investigation into their customs elsewhere. I should like to shut the door. Oh, sorry, but uh, that rain's pretty strong now. Our cab's gone back to town. 
Mind our coming in and phoning for another one? We have no phone. Well, in that case, we'll accept your hospitality. I haven't offered it. You're not going to send a lady out in that rain. I... Well, come in, please. Thanks. Mrs. Dunn, will you prepare a couple of the guest rooms for Miss... Uh, Adams. For Miss Adams and Mr. Craig. Yes, Mr. Loomis. You can wait here in this room. We'll wait. I don't care for guests in my house. Under the circumstances, I cannot help myself. I hope you will find your rooms comfortable, but I do not greatly care. Good night. Hmm. He's been taking lessons on how to become the perfect host. <laughs> Thanks for trying to cheer me up. It's all so strange. Barry, where is my uncle? I don't know. Do you have the telegram with you, the, the one he sent? Well, I think... Uh, no, not with me. It would be in my bag in another purse. Oh, your bag. That reminds me. I left it outside on the doorstep. I'd better go get it before it gets drenched to the pigskin. Come back quick. Well, don't worry. Now, where did I put... Virginia Gregg played Mrs. Dunn. Oh, I have one more if you want to hear it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. This one's with Parley Bear. <laughs> we were doing, um, I believe it was a Dr. Christian, and that was an audience show. And I was extremely pregnant. I was pregnant three times, and each time I was extremely pregnant. <laughs> and I was doing these shows, like this. And at that time, the skirts you wore had a little string that tied from here, and the stomach was cut out. If one of those strings broke, your skirt fell. There was no way you could hang on to it. So I was sitting on stage, the cast is on stage while they announce everybody, and I felt this thing go bing. <laughs> and I picked up my top, and I got this side, and I went, oh, it, it broke. You know, it didn't come untied, it broke. And I can't stand up to do my part. So I say to Rosemary, do you have a safety pin? And she says, no. I go on down the line and nobody has a safety pin. Here's my part coming up. We're on the air. I say to Parley, come here a minute. And I said, take your hand and hold this and take the other hand and hold this and walk up to the microphone with me. <laughs> so God knows what's going to happen if he lets go one of those strings. So he walks up to the microphone with me, holding here and holding here, and the producer and the director and the cast, they have no idea what's going on. <laughs> so we got through the program with Parley Bear holding my skirt on. <laughs> Thank you, Parley. That's probably the most useful I have ever been on any show. <laughs> second time that night, I was out on Mr. Loomis's doorstep. I began to feel like little Eva heading the wrong way. Well, that didn't work. It would have to be the bells again. Who the devil? Oh, you. Me. I was getting Miss Adams' bag when the door blew shut. Oh, come in, come in. I... Ruth. Not in the room I left her. 
That scream must have come from farther down the hallway. Now, what's this room? It's the library. Ruth! Ruth! The door's locked. Where's the key? I... I don't know. Mrs. Dunn looks after the keys. I... Well, there's no time. Excuse me while I try to ruin a library door. Now, look here. I'm too busy. Uh, the library's empty. Not exactly. On the floor near the fireplace. Ruth. Ruth's the size of a baseball on the back of her head. Uh, she may have fallen. Or been struck. Ruth. Uh, he... right, take it easy. It should. What happened? Someone hit me from behind. I, I, I didn't see. What made you come to this room? Well, I heard groans, and, and then the door was open. Groans? From, from him. From who? The man in the chair near the desk. I, I, I can't look at him. He was grinning at me. Yeah, let's get you up now. Come on. There. How's that? I'm all right. Fine. Now... Which man in what chair? Well, right there in that... In that... There's nobody in that chair. Your rooms are ready. But there was someone. A man, a middle-aged man. His, his eyes were staring straight ahead. and There was blood on his shirt, a lot of blood. Now, no, no, take a deep breath. There's no hurry. He died as I came in. I, I could feel the cold air of death on my skin. He grinned at me and he died. Oh, this girl is hysterical. This room's always kept shut. Well, the windows? Mm, boarded up. Only one door. Maybe it was your imagination, Ruth. No. She did see something. What? I've lived in this part of the country all my life. That's how I know. The man she saw was the former owner of this house. He died with a bullet through his heart. In this room. In that chair. Then I was right. The only thing is, it all happened... 80 years ago. That slowed conversation down to nothing. I took Ruth up to her room, checked it, made sure no one would be able to get in once she locked the door behind her, and then I started out. Barry. Yeah? Before I realized that man in the library was dead, I touched him. Then I wiped my hands on this handkerchief. Look at it, Barry. Okay. Yeah. It was blood I wiped off my hands. Two ghosts who died 80 years ago still bleed. Well, I didn't have a good answer for that. I just made sure she locked her door, and I went off to my room and tried to sleep. I had my troubles. I was glad when morning arrived, along with the eggs, bacon, and coffee. Well, it's a nice breakfast, Mrs. Dunn. Yes, sir. I trust you slept well, Miss Adams? I, I, yes, I slept well. Yeah, good. Ah, that will be your taxi, Mr. Craig. Well, right on time. Glad he let us finish breakfast. You ready, Ruth? Mm -hmm. I'm ready. All right. Thanks for your hospitality, Mr. Loomis. Not at all. We'll find our own way out. Well, what do you know? Mr. Lomas was telling the truth. Let's take a taxi, huh? 
We got into the cab and drove away. It took a little longer for Ruth to start worrying about it than it had taken me. Barry, the cab driver, it's the same one as last night. Yes, quite a happy coincidence. Coincidence? Keep your voice down. No coincidence at all. Our boy up front is working dirty hand and glove with dear Mr. Loomis. How do you know? Oh, we found out last night there was no phone at the house. How did Loomis manage to get a cab out here so early in the morning? Oh. Then after he tried to frighten us away from the tower house, the cab driver stayed here. Uh huh. <gasps> what are you going to do with that gun? Apply the back end of it as soon as he slows up for the turn. Like this. I hadn't any choice. He disapproved of our low voice conversation. He was reaching for his own gun when I lent him mine, behind the ear. The car stalled, which was nice. I tied him up, dumped him at the side of the road, and went back to the old tower house. The dog, he's crying, Barry. Yeah, around the side of the house, at the cellar door. Oh, he's running away. Probably decided we're friends of Mr. Loomis. This is what he was listening to from the cellar. That sounds like... like digging. Let's go down and check. Barry! It's Mr. Loomis. He's digging a hole. <gasps> that body! Ghost you saw last night. That's Mark Reed, Ruth. And what Mr. Loomis is digging is a grave. Isn't it, Mr. Loomis? What? No comments. Or have you been working too hard? Get out of here. I don't think so. Why did you murder Reed? I didn't. He shot himself. And you're trying to protect his good name? Very well. I did murder Mr. Reed. A gentleman with a great deal of cash on hand. Cash he was going to leave to your charming companion. You reel it off so well, keep going. I have better ideas for that money. Mark Reed became frightened of Mrs. Dunn and myself, who'd worked for him for so long. He sent for you. I tried to have the cabbie keep you from coming here, but... Well, such frankness on your part wouldn't be wise, would it? Unless something's changed. Your voice changed quality a few moments ago. Lots of changes. What happened? Mrs. Dunn show up at the head of the stairs with a gun in her hand? Quick, shoot! <laughs> She wasn't quick enough. Amateurs never are. They don't realize how heavy a pull you need on a trigger. Don't worry about her, Mr. Loomis. I just winged her shoulder. I'm not worrying about it. I should have realized that. Courtesy stops outside the death cells, doesn't it? We got them all into the cab and drove to Dorning. We had a nice jail. They're glad to welcome Mr. Loomis, Mrs. Dunn, and the cab driver. Mark Reed went elsewhere. I wish he'd asked you to come to him earlier. You'd have liked him, but forget it if you can. I'll try. Barry, when we were in the cellar, Mrs. Dunn came in, but not from the outside. From a fake door in the library is where she came. I expected her. But how did... You, you yourself told me when you went into the library, you felt a breath of cold air on your skin. But the windows were all boarded up, as I mentioned, so... You knew there had to be another door to the cellar, as it turned out. You know, this is a much nicer trip than the one yesterday. 
Mrs. Donna just tried to kill you then. You were traveling deeper into danger. Now about the only danger you're in, unless you get to the other side of the car. Is, uh, danger of this, sir? Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. Barry. Yeah? I got a secret. What? I'm not afraid. Maybe. But I am. That couldn't swim. Of course, we didn't really know whether you have been he could listening swim or not. To William Gargan he was in dead when we met. Another exciting transcribed but... mystery drama from the adventures of Barry Craig, confidential investigator. Tonight's story, Ghosts Don't Die in Bed, was written by Louis Vitties. that with the program you have just heard, we conclude the present Barry Craig series. We hope you have enjoyed them, and we look forward to bringing them to you again sometime in the not-too-distant future. We would like to call your attention to the fact that next week, Dragnet changes time of broadcast, and also that next week, Lux Radio Theater joins the NBC network on Tuesday night for your better listening pleasure. Consult your local newspaper for the time of broadcast of the Lux Radio Theater, over this NBC radio station. The National Broadcasting Company has brought you an NBC Radio Network production with William Gargan, starring as Barry Craig, confidential investigator, directed by Arthur Jacobson. Also heard were Jack Moyles, Charles Lung, Betty Lou Gerson, and Virginia Gregg. This is John Lang speaking. Here is some information that will help you to know more about CARE, C-A-R-E. The letters stand for Cooperative for American Remittances Everywhere, Incorporated. It is a non-profit organization specifically set up by America's mass relief agencies to provide an effective, economical way for Americans to send food and other essentials to needy persons overseas on person-to-person basis. CARE is approved by the United States government and works under favorable agreements with countries abroad. You may send a CARE package to a specific person or group. Simply give your name and address and the name and address of the recipient and you will receive a signed receipt upon delivery. If you do not know someone abroad you want to help, one of CARE's member agencies will choose a needy family for you. Five dollars delivers the new basic CARE food package containing 26 pounds of meat, beans, sugar, and milk powder. Ten dollars will send the larger standard package. Remember, freedom is threatened when starvation and suffering persist. Food will help whip communism in economically weak countries. Send your contribution today to CARE. C-A-R-E, New York. This is the NBC Radio Network. The series announced its cancellation at the end of the episode, but a month later it was back on the air 
in a 25-minute format for another 39 episodes recorded in Hollywood. The last Barry Craig episode, aired on September 30, 1955, replaced thereafter with the science fiction series X-1, produced in New York. 192 episodes were broadcast. This is William Gargan again. I walked into the office of a business friend the other day to keep a luncheon appointment and found that on his work pile desk he had one of those little signs that you two no doubt have often seen on desks or walls, especially in business establishments. Each sign has one big printed word, think. While waiting, I read the newspaper and when he was about ready to join me a few moments later, I jabbed a forefinger at several news stories assortedly dated to Washington, Formosa, Moscow, and Berlin, and said, uh, Joe, from the mess the world's in, uh, we'd better change signs like this one to another word, pray. He thought about that for a moment. Then he replied, Bill, I believe my little sign is better than you imagine. If a man thinks at all, he's certain to pray. Any thinking man knows that our problems are so great that we must have help from above. Thinking of God's love for man and of man's perpetual dependence upon God, well, isn't that very thought a prayer in itself? I saw the point and hastened to agree. Clear thinking and prayer can sometimes be the same thing. What better thing is there to pray for right now but that God will favor us with some clear thinking? In other words, wisdom. And my friend added another thought that's been running through my mind ever since. A world of prayer will be a world of peace. Once again, family theater reminds you, the family that prays together stays together. After Barry Craig went off the air, Bill Gargan continued to occasionally host Family Theater. He also made films, Miracle in the Rain and the Rawhide Years. He starred on the West Coast stage in the version of The Desperate Hours for Randy Hale, and went to Europe to film 39 episodes of The New Adventures of Martin Kane for Ziv Productions. In 1960, Hale was set to cast Gargan on stage in The Best Man, but about with laryngitis, forced Gargan to get some tests on his throat done. It was throat cancer. Doctors were forced to remove his larynx on November 10, 1960. A breathing stoma was cut into the bottom of his throat. A man whose voice made him famous no longer had one. For a time, he was depressed. Friends Bing Crosby, Dennis Day, Phil Harris, Alice Fay, and many others came by. It helped. Gargan couldn't bear the thought of not speaking again. He made his first vocal lesson through the American Cancer Society in January of 1961. 
It took him more than a year, but by the following February he was making progress. The ACS was looking for a Southern California vice chairman for their 1962 drive. Gargan agreed to serve. In 1963, he met President Kennedy. He had a meeting set with the president for November 23rd. It was one that President Kennedy never made it to. By then, his brother Ed was ill with diabetes and emphysema. He passed away in 1964. That year, Gargan was hired by the ACS for their full-time national staff. Within three years, Gargan mastered esophageal speech. He wouldn't use a vocal amplifier and worked tirelessly to be able to speak in both low and high tones. Bill thanked his wife Mary for refusing to let him give up and for his faith that kept him asking why. And that's what he titled his autobiography, Why Me? By then he knew the answer. Bill Gargan spent the next two decades raising money, awareness, and the spirits of fellow cancer patients around the country. On February 16, 1979, while on a flight between New York and San Diego following a tour lecturing for the ACS, Gargan suffered a fatal heart attack. He was 73. William Dennis Gargan is buried at Holy Cross Cemetery in San Diego, California. While that brings our look at the life of William Gargan to a close, we'll be staying in this time period for the next episode of Breaking Walls. This is Henry Cassidy in Radio Central New York. Now the NBC World News Roundup, major developments and on-the-spot reports by correspondents of NBC News. Here are the headlines. Washington, Eisenhower, Macmillan, Broaden Conference bring in NATO chief on rocket pool. London, Macmillan's power seen slumping as laborites win by election for parliament. Cairo, Syria stands firm against Saudi Arabian mediation as United Nations resumes Mideast debate. Moscow, Sputnik losing a race being passed by its own rocket propeller. I'll be back in one minute with the NBC World News Roundup. Next time on Breaking Walls, it's the fall of 1957 and the world is in transition. Both the civil rights movement and the space race are underway. We'll begin a story arc covering all things through the lens of radio starting in the month of September. The reading material used in today's episode was On the Air by John Dunning Why Me in Autobiography by William Gargan The Big Show by Martin Grams Jr. and Network Radio Ratings by Jim Ramsberg. On the interview front, Parley Bayer, Hyman Brown, Lawrence Dobkin, Betty Lou Gerson, Virginia Gregg, Herb Ellis and Herb Vigran spoke to Spurvac. For more info, go to Spurvac.com. Bing Crosby and Lorene Tuttle spoke with Same Time, Same Station. Hyman Brown spoke to Dick Bertell and Ed Corcoran for WTIC's The Golden Age of Radio. Hear these interviews at goldenage-wtic.org. Parley Bear and Hyman Brown also spoke with Chuck Shaden. Hear their full chats at speakingofradio.com. Connie Boswell spoke with Lee Phillip. And Ernest Canoy spoke with Walden Hughes for Yesterday USA.
Selected music featured in today's episode was The Man with the Golden Arm by Elmer Bernstein String Quartet No. 12 in F Major Opus 96 by Avi Avital Pyramid of the Sun in Voodoo Dreams by Les Baxter and Living Without You by George Winston who recently passed away Subscribe to Burning Gotham the new audio soap opera set in 1835 New York City. It's available everywhere you get your podcasts and at burninggotham.com. Special thank you to Ted Davenport, Jerry Hendigas, and Gordon Skeen. For Ted, go to radiomemories.com. For Jerry, visit otrsite.com. And for Gordon, go to pastdaily.com. I'd also like to thank Walden Hughes and John and Larry Gassman of Spurvac. Listen to their shows on the Yesterday USA Radio Network. Breaking Walls, episode 143, will move to the fall of 1957 with a world in turmoil. We'll focus on the radio industry and the rocket age in this far-reaching installment. This episode will be available beginning September 1st, 2023, everywhere you get your podcasts and at thewallbreakers.com. In the meantime, give Breaking Walls a quick rating on whatever platform you listen, especially iTunes. You can also join the Breaking Walls Facebook group at facebook.com groups slash the wallbreakers and support this show for as little as a buck a month at patreon.com slash the wallbreakers so until september 1st my name is james scully this has been breaking walls episode 142 and i'll catch you on the flip side thank you very much